you're watching the Tesla Life. It's Investor Day 2023. Your host, Mark Coughlin. Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Tesla Life Investor Day number 296. Thank you, Casey, for the intro. Very good, very good. Uh, Not bad Patrick, for microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick uh, may join us. We're hoping he can, uh, but uh, we're going to start this off anyway. So here we are, 3.30 or a little bit after 3.30 on uh, Wednesday, March the 1st. 2023 which of course is investor day i understand that the actual video feed uh coming from giga texas will start at about 4 p.m eastern uh or as soon as the markets uh, close uh, which again is 4 p.m eastern so we will see if uh what the timing is we're already taking bets on how late the start will be after 4 p.m so if uh, you're in the chat room already or uh, about to be in there, give us the time that, uh, how much time, overtime do you think it'll be before we hear someone actually speak on stage? My guest, off the start, I'm going to say just going to be eight minutes late. Okay. I, I was, I was going to say, if he, if he thinks this is a, uh, if he's in investor brain mode, maybe about eight minutes. Uh, if he's in just regular Elon party mode, up to, up to 40 minutes. <laughs> and, um, so in the chat, I was actually, I actually put a chat in there and, and YouTube decided not to share with anybody. So Dave Rainbow gets the first credit for chat and he's looking forward to this. Uh, uh, super excited for the future potential these guys will deliver. Uh, and then I replied to that. And then Derek said, uh, what will be the most exciting announcement of the event? Any guesses? Uh, there'll be pictures, there'll be clapping and cheering, and then Elon will stutter a few times, and we'll be happy with something that comes out. Uh, Mark says Gigafactory Canada. I, I think so. <laughs> That'd be interesting. Um, we've got a story on that, uh, opposite, opposite of Canada. Uh, Logical Roger says 420, and uh, Mark says eight minutes late. <laughs> Yes, indeed. So, uh, yeah, so if you've got your uh, guesses, oh, Roger says 420. So 420 late, Roger? Is that what you're saying? 20 Extra 420? Or 420 minutes? Yeah. Well, that's too long. Four hours, 20 minutes? Or is that... 420 on the clock. It'll be doobie time, and he, he'll show up with, with another puff of smoke, piss off the Air Force again. <laughs> you don't want to piss off the Air Force. They're paying your bills at SpaceX. You do right. not want to piss and then them off. Who knows how space space force will respond? They might they might not be as as forgiving as Air Force was. That's right. That's <laughs> right. So yeah, we've got uh, we've got some interesting uh, territory that we're going to be moving into here on Investor Day. We understand that Elon. Uh, one of the things he had mentioned uh, early uh, was that uh, he was going to talk about his uh, next his uh, third iteration of um uh asp asper aspirational thoughts uh, his uh his third master plan <laughs> master plan that he's adding or or uh, twa uh, if uh, you're going to go by the original one and do so um it's it'll be interesting to Watch see what language again 
<laughs> yeah, it's just back and forth. Maybe this time it'll be in German. What's three in German? I don't know. But um, it will be interesting to see what uh, what he uh, is going to be heading the company towards uh, or what, you know, certainly what what pieces uh, he's going to bring to us and tell us about uh, today, today in his uh, introduction. Uh, we've got some other things that, that are going on. Like, uh, for example, we, we, we certainly know that he's probably going to talk about the introduction of um, CCS charging to the United States, um, which, yes. of course, we've been following closely. Uh, we have about 10 locations now, I believe, eight in New York State, two in California yes. that officially have um, the CCS magic dock. More than two in California when I looked last night. Okay, um, that's that's a possibility. Um, I'm just going by uh, the tweets that I've found so far. Okay. And uh, there's a spreadsheet that we put up on our Twitter feed uh, with all 10 locations and actually the pricing uh, of those locations. And uh, thanks out to uh, Brandon uh, who uh, compiled that uh, little spreadsheet uh, and the pricing. So uh, that's one thing uh, that uh, certainly... Oh be spoken about it was it was two and a bunch of destination chargers okay all right i'm just talking superchargers yeah no that's me too but uh i was so busy scrolling last night in in the app and then uh uh you can get you can get to canada or you can get from canada almost you can almost get to canada yeah <laughs> actually well, i'm assuming get, you're not going to have an empty charge yeah you, you can get a charge <laughs> and then cross the border so uh, that will not be a problem. You could do that in Batavia. You could do that in uh, the one that's just south of Buffalo, Freedon or Free. What is it? Just the one that's south southwest of Buffalo. Fredonia. Fredonia, the original one. Yes. Yes. So uh, absolutely. So that's going to make some people happy. Uh, that's what I wanted to ask you, Casey, on your Tesla app. Can you yeah. go to the non-Tesla area? Do you have a non-Tesla area? And yeah, that yeah. is found when you click on your little circle identi identifier yes. of your name. Yeah. So you'll, you'll, you'll go to, you'll open up your Tesla app, whether you have a Tesla or not. Then you click on the circle that is either your, your face or your logo or whatever you've decided to put in, into the Tesla app, um, or it'll be a silhouette. After you click on that, it'll have your name and, and your products, inbox, loot box, et cetera. If you scroll, uh, if you scroll this all the way to the right, it'll say charge your non-Tesla. Yep. And then from there, it'll pop up a map of your current location. So I turn the map back around because, you know, witness protection and all that. And then, <laughs> then as you zoom out, um, you can then find the non-Tesla enabled superchargers as well as all the non-Tesla enabled destination chargers. And then as you click on them, you can get the pricing. And how many stalls are open? Uh, that if you have a membership, it's thirty-nine kilowatt hour, uh, thirty-nine cents a kilowatt hour. If you don't have a membership, it is forty-nine cents a kilowatt hour. And same idle fees as us, a dollar a minute. Uh, you can click charge here. Yeah, we want to get off screen because I'm looking at the wrong screen. So then you get your credit card. You could unlock a uh, a post, and uh, and then you're good to go there. It'll tell you how to use it. The first time you started up, I've started up once before, so it's not showing me again. Like, yeah, you've seen this already. No, uh, me <laughs> being in Canada, my app doesn't show that ability. So I get no access what? to those uh, 
to those non-Tesla chargers. There's not even that section off of my uh, login. So I wonder if that will happen if you cross the border. Yeah, that's so what weird. I was wondering. If, if I cross the border, will the Canadian app show the third-party uh, locations? Um, hopefully. You know what? Let me go back in there and try to go to Europe real quick. Because that would be uh, that would not be good uh, if if you were traveling and you allowed. weren't able to pull it up. Because I've also <laughs> noticed that if you go into the regular Tesla app and you go to your location, if you want a Tesla, and then you look at yeah. the map of superchargers around you, there's no oh yeah, there's Europe. Uh, there's no uh, indication as to that there's a CCS Magic Dock charger. Like there's no indicator on the details of the website to show that this has a CCS dock. You gotta use that. Oh, oh here's something cool. Uh, the I, I told it to charge my non-Tesla. And, and look at that icon right there. That is the uh, wait icon that we see in the car when it's too busy. Ah. The little clock. Okay. All right. Uh, and, and what's also amazing is that I can unlock European superchargers from here. So I can just give people free charges. <laughs> well, I can pay for charges for other people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're generous like that, right? Just going to let. I'm not made of money. So, so uh, Derek's asking how we got there again. So, again, in the in Tesla app, uh, whether you have a Tesla or not, top right corner, uh, assuming that you're in a country that supports charging non Teslas, so US and, and European countries, you hit your, your silhouette or your. Uh, whatever your avatar is. Your avatar, uh, your icon, and... the circle icon in the top yeah. right-hand corner. And then you scroll in the middle here, you scroll from your products to charge your non-Tesla. There you and go. And then it'll show a map of where you are, and there should be none nearby, unless you happen to be in New York or California or Europe. Then you zoom out to where you want to go. Then, uh, then let, it, let it load for a minute, and it'll show you uh, these are the new ones in New York. Just like that. There we go. Yeah, so we expect uh, Elon will talk a little bit about that. Maybe he'll give us some indication as to how widely this is going to roll out or any type of a time frame. Uh, again, right now, we only know of locations in New York State and California. So uh, we'll have to see That's if right. you uh, are new some. that number Which actually you see there, starts. Derek? starts to uh, go up or if there's some indication uh, from Elon, if there's going to be a, uh, a number of them added as time goes along. There's Patrick. How are you today, sir? Wild Patrick appears, but no sound. <laughs> oh, we can probably hear him though, some, knowing, some knowing configuring of the old microphone cable. He doesn't there even look see. like he, he hears us. Give us hey, a I can hear you now. I can hear you now. <laughs> Derek, Derek can see Scott's Valley oh. from where he sits in the app anyway. <laughs> you, you guys exactly. were talking about how late Elon's going to be, but you didn't have how late is Pat going to be. <laughs> no, we didn't. Well, we didn't know until we started the show how late that would be. <laughs> uh, for the bets, Patrick was 13 over. So. <laughs> Uh, we were just talking and about the, lunch, the magic so. dock, Patrick, and how uh, oh, yeah. it is now available on your app. Uh, if you're in the United States or Europe, if you're in Canada, you do not have that section to look at. So uh, we were kind of wondering what happens if I cross the border. Does it show up automatically? I hope it would, uh, because if I was mm. traveling, I'd certainly want them to appear uh, as yeah. to where they are. Otherwise, that would be right. that would be a tough hit and miss uh, <laughs> trying to figure out where to charge. 
But right. uh, and we came to nothing conclusive because I can see the European Chargers, the the non-Tesla European Chargers. Oh. But at the same time, that makes sense though. Like once they enable supercharging in the U.S., we could always see the Chargers outside of the U.S. in the car, even if we couldn't see them from the Tesla website, because that's been hit or miss. Like they change yeah. that all the time how they how they portray them. Uh, I was hoping, I I am still hoping that some of the other third-party groups like uh, Supercharge.info updates mm -hmm. their mapping system so you can just search on the ones with Magic Docs and uh, use that as a filtering ability. Uh, hopefully, uh, as Tesla moves forward, uh, maybe that would be an option as well uh, on their yeah. normal location area. Yeah. Uh, or their like, website. They right. the trip planner from the car in the okay. app, and then they don't have to worry about sharing a feed with that route planner or anybody. Exactly. Not, not saying that they don't want them to, but I would also love the ability to use the Tesla trip planner in the app. They, they could say, hey, your non-Tesla is what? Or, hey, uh, you do have a Tesla. We know all about it. You're at 70% of charge. Let's, 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 you want to go to Disney? You're going to need to charge five times. Yeah. yeah, I think they're going to have to add that feature because they have depended on the in-nav to do it. And with third-party cars or non-Tesla cars, they don't have that. So, yeah. It's right. coming soon, which will be nice. And, and, and yes, they have the option to continue doing what they used to do, but then that means Tesla doesn't get any of that money, which would be a bad customer service experience and, and leaving money on the table as, as a business. So Derek's now searching his app in California. He sees two of them, one in Placerville, one in Scotts Valley. Uh, Derek would love to hear if you see a third one, because at this point, we only know of two in California and eight in uh, New York. So if anyone's got any extra information about a new one, certainly like to know. Another point of interest that we think should be discussed uh, today uh, was, of course, the president of Mexico got on Twitter the other day and had indicated that, yes, a deal has been struck with Tesla and uh, they will be at some point uh, announcing a, a factory of some sort. Uh, and he particularly uh, spoke about uh, the, the problem with water uh, that we've heard about before, uh, that uh, Mexico and certain areas, certain states in Mexico are having issues with uh, groundwater. And of course, a factory is going to use groundwater, uh, quite a bit of it for operation, and they don't want them to be um, limited uh, to how many cars could be produced because the, the water table is not available for the factory. So with Elon's call that happened with the president of Mexico last Sunday, uh, we're assuming uh, that uh, some deal or some compromise was struck uh, that would work for both parties. So that will be something else that most likely will be discussed uh, in the call. Yeah, definitely. I know this will never happen, or I shouldn't say never, but but this is certainly not what they're planning. But this, one of the things that you can do is desalination uh, from the ocean. Uh, it's it's expensive, but one of the byproducts of desalination is lithium. Yeah, <laughs> because it's a salt, so, right? So you get the water and the lithium. Uh, that and is so salt. awesome, <laughs> right? And yes, and chlorine <laughs> and gold. Not not very mm -hmm. much gold, but gold's pretty useful. Yeah, surprisingly, you can. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, not very much, but. How is there gold floating around all. the ocean? But yeah, there is. That's just mind-boggling to think of. And uh, Casey, Derek's asking about the pan locks. What does the pan lock mean? Pan locks. Let me see. Oh, the padlocks. Um, I think those are private uh, 
destination chargers. So, like, if you have non-Teslas or Teslas, if you're not a customer of that business, you're not allowed to to use their listed destination charger. Like my grandmother's in should should have a padlock on it. Yeah. And of course, uh, Tesla's making available up to, I believe it was 7,500 uh, stalls available uh, for yes. the CCS uh, non-Tesla charging. Um, and of course, that, that, that was a combination of both supercharging and destination charging. And as we discussed on the show last week, we were kind of wondering how they could do the destination chargers for both, uh, because most of them would be strictly a... Nax plug, uh, a Tesla mm -hmm. plug would be on those. So unless you have, them, unless you had your own Tesla tap uh, adapter, uh, you would have issue in using those. You can get a Tesla tap, but also don't forget, so many of the the, the destination charger sites were always installed with uh, one or two uh, Tesla plugs at the time, and one or more. Um, they were charge point, not charge point, um, Clipper Creek at the time, but now they're Tesla J1772. So it's the, the, right. the, the Gen 2 or Gen 3 with the J1772 handle. And, and if you're on a Tesla, you could then flip them back, but you wouldn't want to do that because on, on the Nax native ones, they tended to be the higher amperage. So like at my grandmother's site, uh, 40 amp is the, um, uh, is the, is the Gen 1 Tesla. And, and and the 20 amp is the the, the generic right <laughs> yeah that makes sense I mean, overnight it doesn't make a huge difference if you're the second person to show up but you know if you want mm -hmm. to you know, mm -hmm. get back out before before you head in for the night you want to plug in the test plug right there's a lot of little things like this that are going to be complicated i'm sure they'll figure them out but um at some of the locations um like the one in vegas when you pull up there's an arm that's down and yeah. The, on your screen, it pops up a code. To, you have to enter <laughs> to get in. Uh, so yeah. how's that going to work with a non-Tesla? Because it can't just... It's the same with Kettleman City. They have the um, little cafe, cafe there, and they give you a code to get code, into yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, if you don't, aren't driving a Tesla, it can't just pop up on your screen. They'll have to do it in the app, I guess. But so then, either those will be Tesla-exclusive sites, or they'll have to build hmm. the trip planner in, or they'll just put them on this map. Yeah, I think the app makes a lot of sense. You'll be you'll be notified through an, an instant message or inside the app that you've got a, a message to read, which would be the number. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and then the other thing that's coming up with that is um, now that this is opening and it seems to be so smooth and the adapter is tiny compared to native CCS, yeah. um, how many of these stubborn other companies have less reason to not go next now? Well, let's keep in mind. I mean, there's that, an adapter. Let's keep in mind the that, that these other companies have already rolled out the infrastructure themselves, right? They've well, spent the, saying, money. the ones that the ones that don't have their own charging system, and you know, if their customers pick this one more and more, I, I guess the question there were really for them would be: Is Nax cheaper than what they're doing now? And the answer probably is yes, hmm. but then it's a matter of pride if they, if they have pride or not. It could be pride. It could be cost. It could be it could be a number of things because they're going to have to change things around, right? The engineering is going to mm -hmm. have to change for them. Do they want to invest in that? I don't know. Yeah. I, I I think I think the introduction of Nax uh, as an open uh, source for anyone to use, I think it was late. Uh, I think Tesla should have done that five years yes. ago. Uh, it yeah. was it's well, something well, that don't forget they did have a program before, but like 
from what we could tell from everybody who decided not to do it, it was not very agreeable of, of a terms. It was like, yeah. hey, we have it, but but not really. Yeah, <laughs> right. So I think that might have been a, an issue. Another thing that uh, may come up in today's um, uh, presentation, hopefully, will be some news about Cybertruck. We had seen uh, Cybertruck recently <laughs> traveling around a parking lot and a drone catching the action, uh, showing it was a different uh, prototype because of the black uh, tunnel cover uh, that was on it. So uh, yeah. as it was cruising through the parking lot, um, showing off uh, the uh, black uh, roof as well as tonneau cover. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if um, the people at today's event uh, were able to see any more information on Cybertruck. Um, if they were able to, well, there you go. There's, there's a Giga Texas that might be, is that today's show? Yes. Okay, so it's definitely on display which is great, but will they be able to see the actual manufacturing? Oh, there's that big windshield wiper. We knew that was going to show up somewhere. The yoke wheel. <laughs> hybrid. The hybrid yoke. Rear screen. Yeah. So this one some... only has one uh, screen, like a Model 3 and Y, not two, like we saw on one of the preview uh, models. And the seats fold up. Like uh, like some of the car trucks we've seen, rather than down, like some of the others we've seen, which okay. scares me for the ability to pass through. And there's that uh, that red hot lightsaber light laying in the the base of the car, right underneath the seat there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you've got your uh, this is your bumper cam, but uh, you still got the tri triplex up there, triplex. And then there's a video um, from Tesla Daily if you want to watch that after our our video. And uh, yeah. very good. What's back? I don't know if I hit the button too many times or what. Like uh, the cybertruck showed up and you disappeared. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no one wants to watch me eating my lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's right. On the West Coast, it's it's coming up to one, isn't it? Lunchtime. So, uh, yeah, so that's uh, three of the things uh, that we think um, may be addressed uh, in today's presentation, as, as well, of, of course, uh, there may be some others. Um, some other stories that have happened this week uh, that were mentioned as we wait uh, for the start uh, would be, uh, did you hear about Toyota? Uh, apparently, uh, yes. so... they, uh, <laughs> they had some information. Casey, do you want to take that? What, what did Toyota yes, tell so, us? So, so Toyota got themselves a hand, uh, a hand, a hold of a Austin Model Y with the structural battery pack and did what anybody would do, uh, aside from, you know, the smart people who just buy the report from Monroe, they ripped it to shreds and they were surprised <laughs> and impressed. <laughs> they, 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 they said this in public on the record. And uh, so now I'm wondering, perhaps, would they reach back out for a second partnership with Tesla? Because... That's going to be their quickest way to, to catch back up. Understand that. Not not saying that they they, they don't have the engineering capabilities uh, or or the know how, but they don't have the infrastructure set up for it right now, and and so they're going to need some help to to be able to come in at at this level. And uh, it's kind of kind of good to finally hear them not saying all this poo poo. Nobody wants electric. Blah blah blah. Maybe it's just because they didn't know what today's technology looked like. Yeah, nobody wants a Nissan Leaf, but. I'm, 
no offense to anybody who has a Nissan Leaf, it probably works for you, but it's not a modern <laughs> EV. It's, it's, it's a 10-year-old EV with new skin and, <laughs> and a better battery than they launched with. But uh, maybe that was their problem. Is they were thinking of, of you know, the Prius Prime with the 11-mile, not, not the new Prius Prime, but the 11-mile Prius Prime and the original Nissan Leaf. And yeah, nobody in their customer base at a significant portion wants that. But, but what they saw in the Model Y, they, they realized, oh, shoot, we mm-hmm. are behind the ball. And we've got some catching up to do. This can't be the first time that Toyota has got their hands on a, um, uh, a Tesla to be stripped to do down. Yeah, like uh, <laughs> twelve years to do this. Like uh, they had, they had countless Model Ss and Model Threes they could have done this with. Uh, I gotta believe that uh, that it was more than just they didn't know about it. Um, right. it, it was One leadership. level of denialism got removed. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. It was leadership. Definitely. Leadership that or, wouldn't well, budge I mean, on it. Maybe, maybe they, you know, they obviously had to know it existed because they. You remember in Australia, they had to change them from the Camry's number one to the Camry's the number one under whatever price. Maybe, maybe this is like now they've got the new CEO coming in. They they finally had to like do an assessment. They're like, all right, so yeah, there's another Tesla. All right, let's take the skin off because you know the Model Y has been out for a couple of years now. Oh shoot, this doesn't look anything like what we looked at at, at three years ago. Oh my goodness, we are in trouble. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of. Uh... A lot of blame to go around at Toyota. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if they really start to move. Uh, you know, they obviously they've they've looked at Tesla now publicly and have said they believe it's a, an excellent package. Uh, it's it's something that uh, that you know their what was their actual quote? A work uh, of art. Oh yeah, a true work, work of, of art. art. Yeah. <laughs> so um, and I, I saw that Elon had replied uh, to Tesla on Twitter. Uh, oh, thanking them for the comment. Oh, okay. But um, nice. Not not a surprise. And, and they there. didn't say that they had the, the structural pack, but we could tell by some of the com- comments they made, such as uh, that the battery uh, the battery structure was was part of the structure of the car. Tells you that they got an Austin uh, structural pack car because that's just not true on on the other vehicles. Yeah, they're going to spend the time tearing it down. They want to get the latest and greatest, so they're going to get a structural. Would, pack would they car. even know it exists? <laughs> <laughs> I, again i'm sure they probably do and they wouldn't admit it but uh, i'm gonna trim the title just a bit because it's covering you up pat and <clears throat> change on the stream to a play button so uh, another uh, piece of information that uh, or story we should cover before the start of this thing uh is that uh uh, uh germany uh hit now 4k in uh in the number of uh, units produced uh, in a week. So we heard about the 3K a little while ago, uh, and now we're up to 4K, so that's great. They're still ramping. Uh, they're going to get up to uh, 5K or, or greater uh, this year for sure. Um, it'll be interesting to see how far they actually uh, get going. So that's the uh, Tesla feed you're seeing in the big part of the screen. They're giving us uh, some... Uh, it's some like a door. Uh, pre, some pre video. Yeah, it's got music. It's a little. Uh, is it a little chunky for you, or is it flowing perfectly fine? Look, flowing beautifully for me. What about everybody else? It's chunky. I'm getting. It's chunky. Yeah. Does one of you guys want to? YouTube is showing it's chunky. Right, but does one of you guys want to share it instead? Uh, maybe it's my connection because I'm on cellular here. Okay. Um, 
So you just fired up the uh, Tesla Investors site? Oh yeah, I'll pop it in the I'll pop it in the private chat here for you. So it sounds like I'm going to have to get my cardboard forest warriors going again in Germany. I can't have you ahead of me. <laughs> got to slow you down. We got the a record. Yeah, first to 5K. It's it got to be Austin. Come on, we got to slow him down. <laughs> well, watch Austin announce theirs tomorrow or right here at the event. Remember how quickly Austin Austin did their 3K and then, then Berlin came back. So we did 3K too. <laughs> the battle's well, done rivalry, over. you know? <laughs> Okay, I've got it running. Let's see if so I can share the people. screen. Now mine's flowing and I'm sharing. All right, make it bigger. Uh, one more. One more to the right. There you go. There you go. Perfect. Oh, that looks so much better. Right off. Leave some bandwidth on my side. I got unlimited cable bandwidth today, so that should be okay. <laughs> nice. Uh, so yeah, that's. Uh, wait, that's wait, it's the bunny side. Look, it's a stamping. That's right. It is. It's a. Uh, we saw from the invite. Mm-hmm. But now, okay, a lot closer. Rear door. Rear door opening. So that's the model Y, right? No. Yep. Should be a Y. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Just thinking it could have been a three, but everything's too big. To be a three. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this will be interesting to see what uh, actually happens. So guys, uh, we're one minute over. What's your guess is before we see someone speak? I've got uh, four oh eight. Uh, put in the comments as to how long you think it's going to take before someone speaks. I'll go with twenty after forty. Patrick's at 20. Casey's at what? 408 and 440. Remember, I said, uh, depending on which Elon we get today. <laughs> you can't take. Why do you get two numbers? Why do you get two guesses? Because if I'm it's an investor stuff. event, it's going to be eight minutes or less. If it's if it's uh, called an investor event, but he's thinking party party. Well, we need minutes. you to tell <laughs> us what, what mode he's right. in. Yeah. <laughs> Right. How am I supposed to know? The man is crazy. <laughs> I'm going to pick between sometimes between now and next week. I win. <laughs> <laughs> I get two guesses. <laughs> Those are two guesses. He's <laughs> what we call an evil genius. So this oh. is morphing in the actual invite, right? That's what's happening I here. I think so. Yeah. I wonder so, what who made is this still a render or is this like real like in the factory the warehouse? <laughs> That's oh, that not would, a warehouse. There's that no would way. Be so massive. Yeah, this is just There's a drone no shot way. flying over. <laughs> yeah, it's just a drone. Yeah, from the It pans up and then drives out the window. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah you, you just see let a drone inside in the rows. inside one of the open windows and it's just buzzing around the factory floor. <laughs> Yeah, there you so can see the start of the embossing there. of the letter T. It's definitely morphing into the uh, the background of the invite. Yeah, Hockey Day is trying to corner the market. 
<laughs> the, the answer is obviously 420. I mean, come on. This is... We already had a 420. Yeah. We already had a 420. We already have the winner then. That's... Okay, so we, we know it's a render now because if there's if the, unless these things load from the bottom, there's no way they did that. <laughs> yeah. I like David's answer. 2.2 million oops wrong contest. <laughs> Here we are. That is a good one. Uh oh, are they on time? Ish. Uh, what's 4.04? Nah, it's impossible. 4.04. It's impossible. Haven't seen anybody yet speak. The, the music stops, and it is an investor called Investor Day. We might get Investor Elon today. No, it started again. <laughs> it's fading, though. <laughs> I think we're on. No, oh. I recycled. Oh, well, it's back to the beginning. Psych. <laughs> uh, if you're uh, listening with us now, please give us a thumbs up on the video. That would really help us out. Uh, we'd appreciate that. The more thumbs up we can get, uh, the more eyes we can get in front of new people. So please give us a thumbs up, help us out. Um, so the night of our last show, they had a surprise event uh, that Patrick alerted us to. That's right. And uh, how, yeah. how late were they on that one, Patrick? Uh, like 22 minutes or something? Uh, I only caught it uh, when it was already going. So uh, I, I don't know when it started. Okay. And Patrick, fill us in as to what that event was. Yeah. All right. So um, they were announcing a new engineering headquarters. So they're not calling it hq2 it's an engineering headquarters and it's in california so uh governor newsom was there um and uh this is one of the best places to attract the kind of talent that tesla wants for their engineering is california so uh they're going to have a they showing off the new building they have there or new ish which is just down the street from one that they had already had this used to be uh, Hewlett Packard's headquarters, and uh, now it's Tesla's engineering headquarters. And of course, like all events like this, it's uh, part recruiting. If you want to work on cool robots and AI and design the future, come uh, work at Tesla. That was definitely part of the pitch. It wasn't that long of an event. No, it was like thirty minutes or less, including the wait time. Yeah. yeah, a couple couple photos of the uh, site, the old Hewlett Packard uh, headquarters, uh, which mm -hmm. Tesla, as Patrick mentioned, had taken over. Um, and they had some cars out front, and they actually yeah. took the Cybertruck uh, and put it on some uneven surfaces. Uh, it looked yeah. like a, a bit of a rock face, but obviously it wasn't rock, uh, a, an actual rock face. It was uh, it was textured to look a little bit like black rock, uh, which was uh, right out front of the actual uh, building um yeah they're driving over their landscaping that they just had installed yeah <laughs> I, I, I can imagine the landscaper <laughs> freaking out going it's fresh sod what are you boys doing <laughs> so friday my mom <laughs> drove past this facility doing a delivery and she snapped some pictures um ah. i thought that they went live you, you tricked me <laughs> no sorry <laughs> ah sorry I, I thought i could scroll through these pictures but this is a microsoft app on a mac uh <laughs> Hang, hang on. <laughs> Mark, you'll so, alert us if they go live. And yeah, uh, okay. that, what's that a picture of? Is that a, like a warming? Uh, yeah, a warming that's like pool? a warming. Yeah, but it's also a, a sign saying uh, Tesla Visitor Valet parking only, and 
see how do I get the rest of these things? Sorry, I, I didn't know it would be so disjointed. Uh, otherwise, I'm gonna. Four oh seven, still waiting for the live event to start. We're approaching my time of four oh eight. That we are. And let's see, share screen again. I don't know how to work this darn thing. Um, not an edge tab. It's a photo. Where'd you go? Windows eleven. For people in the chat, where what what would be the most impressive thing you're looking forward to? What would be uh, the uh, number one announcement you would like to hear today? Put it in the chat. Let us know. That's the front of the building. Okay, where's uh, one of the buildings there? This is the same place that they announced it's on the on the stream you watched. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was that's not the angle I saw. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. I saw a different angle as well. Uh, she's got that one as well. Is it showing you the second picture or the first picture still? Second picture. Okay, good. Uh, this is them arriving. Does it show that now, like the road? Hmm, the nope. picture's not changing for me. So it's only on the second picture. Uh, well, let me load them all up, and then, then we can flip through them somehow. All right, so the one you saw is this one that I'm about to share. And... Still she said, she even caught Google out there. We don't know if it was um, a, a Google. Um, you know what I'll do? I'll just share the whole bottom screen here. Um, we don't know if it was a Google car or um, like a, a Waymo. Here we go. So this is uh, this is them showing up at the the Page Avenue site, and then uh, another copy of that. And then here we go. We're seeing a new photo. There's what. That's what Patrick oh, saw yeah. at the uh, nice. at the event. Yeah. Yeah. That's and then the, there's that's on the, the road there. And it says no Tesla parking. Uh, so they don't want any Tesla deliveries or employees because <laughs> Tesla has a parking problem as usual. And then there's the first one, Page Avenue. And uh, one of the entries. There we go. And then all of you guys. So let me get back and turn off my screen share. So we had some right. cool stuff come through on the chat. Um, Derek says yeah, Model ahead, Next Derek. would be nice to hear about. And absolutely. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's going to take EV adoption to the next level. Definitely a, a breakthrough vehicle. Uh, JL says then, HVAC. And that's one that yes. I'm personally excited about. Tesla has some home products today, but we want to do what, Casey? Electrify all, all the, the things. things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, for Tesla what reason, Patrick? To, yeah, so that we can have a future free from fossil fuels. <laughs> That's what I was talking about. <laughs> and then Andrew suggests, uh, perhaps I'll have a reduced price per car. And I would hope so mm. because they're definitely reducing their cost per car. So, if they could pass some of them savings on, it'd be nice. Oh, so, oh, I, I thought that was another reference to Model X. Um, but you're saying reduced prices, it could be both. Both of those would be exciting. Yeah. Either one of those, I'll take yeah. either. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Andrew says new casting tech, possibly. Yes. The idea I, of being able to cast the entire model next is one piece, not a front and a rear, but the whole thing, that would be so cool. Yes. I'm looking forward, hopefully, to some sort of announcement about their third generation uh, powertrain or, or uh, development uh, train. So that would be uh, interesting to hear either about the RoboTaxi or a cheaper 
priced vehicle, the uh, the fabled Model Next $25,000 vehicle. It'd be great to hear about something <laughs> like that. Although it, it's, you don't want Tesla to Osborne themselves. So uh, if it's not close to being ready, probably wouldn't be announced. Yeah. I don't know that you want that hockey day because dream on hockey day. <laughs> because if if, if 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 this was Elon doing it, then he would just say, "All right, all the cars in the U.S. are the exact price in the in the North America." Um, versus what you would actually want is is them to do what they've always said they're going to do, and, and and keep them adjusted to the same purchasing power, adjusted for inflation. So, you know, that you'd be able to buy it with the same effort as somebody here uh, for for your for your workload rather than what they sometimes are doing is it drifts they don't always adjust it as, as frequently as you might expect personally i, I think i'm not telling you what you think but i i, I suspect that you don't really want that. <laughs> you guys noticed in the bottom right hand corner of the tesla feed that uh it it says tesla but it's spelt only with four letters that is the ticker symbol. So this is an investor day. So that's their stock symbol. TSLA. Okay. All right. Yeah. Drop the E. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so we're, we're 412 so far. So my guess is long gone. I already forgot what I said. Do you remember? <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. But I, whatever Mark said and double it. That's, that's my right? guess. <laughs> So we're getting party time, Elon, that's for sure. So now we're getting, uh, hopefully, they're getting their ducks together and getting ready to present. Yeah. The The reason I didn't suspect that it might have been um, Investor Elon is because when I went to the investor site, this wasn't given the same level of prominence as, as the regular investor events. Uh, yes, like I did the tab. same thing. When we were trying to figure out what time this was going to be, I mean, we knew it had to be after market close, so yeah. it had to be one Pacific or later. Um, but we, yeah, so th that's the first place I went, ir.tesla.com, and like, why isn't it here? All right, yeah. I'm starting to think it's more of a party. Yeah, and, and to be fair, it's there now. I don't know if it was there when you first looked, but it's not on where everything else is. It's like tucked away. You got to dig to get it. It's, it's oh, like, on, I probably really? just missed it then. Yeah. Uh, Andrew's hoping for some Cybertruck uh, details. Yes, we certainly are looking forward to that. I, I'm hoping they show a little bit of maybe the uh, line, uh, the line in development yes. uh, for the, the creation tour. of the Cybertruck. That would be very yeah. cool to even just see some, uh, you know, some of the uh, some of the um, partial uh, built uh, vehicles, even placed, even if it's not operational be great to see some video of how the line looks and what the uh, Cybertruck skeleton looks like on it. Yeah. Do you think we'll get any Optimus updates? See it walking around? Probably. That, that certainly is an aspirational goal for Tesla. So uh, mm -hmm. if this if is, as, as mentioned, if this is, if this is uh, another recruitment uh, draw, then yeah, why wouldn't they show part of it or at least you know, at least have it doing something at the beginning uh, to uh, attract some attention because they always want engineers and developers for that. Well, right. And even um, this is focused on investors. And if you're a long-term investor and have, have had the stock for over 12 years, uh, then you're thinking about that long game and 
how many of these are go they going to be able to sell in 2035? Yeah. <clears throat> I'm checking Elon's Twitter to see if it spans on the toilet again. <laughs> that's, that's a joke from uh, one of Elon's tweets. Right. <laughs> and 37 seconds ago, he says, you're not going to believe this, but we're running a little late. Production presentation starts in about five minutes. No, I, I totally believe it, Elon. I mean, if, if, if we needed to count on you being on time for something or we die, I would, I would be like, yeah, we're not going to die today. <laughs> Actually, uh, that was one of the uh, quotes that came from uh, the uh, engineering headquarters opening uh, was that Elon had said, he said, uh, Tesla brings the impossible, even if it is a little late. Yes, Especially making the impossible, the impossible merely late. late. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true. Like, like, like some of the stuff they do was like completely impossible. And then all of a sudden, why is it taking so long? <laughs> exactly. Where's my jetpack, Elon? Yeah, where's, where's my flying car? <laughs> yeah, my car boots. And actually, with the uh, the next gen roaster, we may be able to say the flying cars have begun, even oh, if it's wow. just a short hop. Yes, the flying car and it's late, even though it's earlier than anybody else ever attempted. <laughs> I so want to see just even if it's just one demo. I I, I want to see the car fly. Like, like the Come tank on. turn, but a hover. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's the easier way to do a tank turn. <laughs> Lift off the ground well, and then that, you can but, spin I mean, around. Like, even if they don't put it on the production cars, like like Rivian didn't put tank turn on the production cars. Right. Yeah. Make it hover in the demo. He's watching sports. <laughs> <laughs> it will be. They're, they're going to have to have so many caveats around where and you can use that. You can't just have something shooting out FSC. all that compressed air. The FSC has to handle it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, but I mean, just just like if, if there's dirt or gravel on the road, you're gonna send it flying. Yes. Um, so not only can it ha does it have to be off road, but it has to be on tarmac. Yeah. So are you guys actually hearing an audio feed from the video? Yes. I'm hearing it on mine, and I'm hearing it again from you. So okay. Yes. So as long as mine's <laughs> coming through. I don't have to do anything special then. Well, yeah, because sometimes we forget to turn on the uh, little checkbox because our streaming app likes to, to to help us with the button, which means that yeah. sometimes it's on and sometimes it's off. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it wants to protect you from getting uh, copyright strikes. 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 Yeah, that's <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. But it, it never does it right for me. Like, like you catch me on Sunday, <laughs> like, oh shoot, the music. <laughs> Yeah, if you want to give uh, the uh, streaming app folks a little uh, tip here, they should bump all of us up. I mean, yes. with, uh, like we could be above this line that here, uh, right there. That's where I, right. yeah. Because there's room above Mark. And I'm just meaning the app. No, I think we were fine. It's just. Uh, uh, but they, they should they should make it yeah. like a little bit better, yeah. Also, right. yeah. like the comments, the comment could not cover your face. Like they do it in both in both arrangements. Like when when uh, when when when, when, uh, when we're in regular just talking mode and when we're in, in this mode, both of them. All right, so Derek, here's the sound for the feed. So that means everybody's good. Cool. Oh, oh four eighteen coming and gone. Thanks, Derek. Yep. We'll see oh, if it's going to be twenty. Ever. 
420 mm-hmm. is less than 60 seconds away. <laughs> so Elon told us five minutes uh, when I put the thing on stream. How long ago was that now? So four minutes ago, he told us five minutes. So he's got one minute to go before he's late for that too. <laughs> if it's if it starts at 420, 420? then you know it was on purpose. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. Yes. <laughs> and, and when you look at it, that is 420. <laughs> he said that at 415. <laughs> Who gave us 420 at the beginning? That was Roger. Right, was Roger gave us Roger. 420. There well, go, what if it begins at 420 and 69 seconds? That's 421. So. <laughs> well, well, that is 421, but it's also Elon. So. <laughs> Elon did not watch. I don't think it will help him. He, ha- he, said he doesn't even know how to read a calendar, um, Derek. It's like, all right, it's going to get the end of the on yeah, Saturday. He needs is his brother to lie to him about when they need to be someplace. <laughs> that is a fantastic graphic, though. Mm-hmm. That is, it is. That is mesmerizing. I'm sure they must have hired an ad agency to do this for them. I don't know. They probably have. They, they could do it in house. They could. They certainly have. Uh... Or borrow some SpaceX people. But yeah, with all the camera processing, I'm sure they have plenty of people that know how to do uh, some cool Photoshop stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially for the dojo. What we saw of the, um, well, not the real dojo, but the whatever they're using right now, getting ready for dojo that, <laughs> on the NVIDIA. Oh, course. yeah. All the simulations that they make for, uh, that have to be photorealistic, um, they probably have a whole team of people that can do this stuff. They have their own uh, equivalent of Dolly. <laughs> you can just type in, just give me a, a bunch Rainy of stampings. Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. <laughs> Tesla watch will always be late. <laughs> 421. Oh. The 420 guess has fallen to the wayside. AMC stamped the entire left and right sides of the car in a single piece stamping. Pretty radical for the time, and it really did improve the body quality of those cars. Twenty gone. Yeah. So this is an evolution of that because now they just cast the whole car. Well, right. Pieces of the car. Yeah. It it is weird to me that there, the auto industry had innovation up like through the seventies, and then it just seemed to stop. Just like Monroe said, you know, all these fiefdoms they want to just coast it out to retirement, and then, you know, it's the way it's always done things. So why? How dare you, yeah. young whippersnappers, try to introduce something new? And and he got fed up and did his own thing. Change is hard. It's always yeah. been hard. Uh, especially yeah. when you're it's entrenched, especially when you're entrenched in something that you believe is working for you, and why bother to fix something that's not broken? Right. And of course, all the other automakers—they're not pushing either. They're doing the same mm-hmm. thing. So mm-hmm. uh, it—it's uh, not surprising that uh, it takes a newcomer to the uh, party to actually make an actual change that everybody and now we're hearing about it right those the sales of those giga presses now are starting to go everywhere so you've got a whole bunch of companies that are now ordering these press machines uh, because they can see that that is the future to lower costs and increase Mm -hmm. production times so indra indra has meant to make themselves a new factory if this keeps up yeah yeah exactly so (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> nice. <laughs> Move it along, Elon. Move it along. <laughs> yeah, it would be oh, interesting uh, to see if if they if Elon actually announces the Mexican location. Um, mm -hmm. The president of Mexico obviously announced it himself. Um, yes. It'll be interesting to see if uh, Elon confirms it because Elon did have a conversation with him last Sunday uh, cool. by telephone to iron out some details. Uh, there was a water issue uh, that we had heard about earlier. Um, it's uh, it's a question of uh, of location, and it'll be interesting to see if uh, they've actually picked a state or region that they're actually going to announce, or if it's just going to be something general that they will announce today, or maybe nothing at all. Uh, it's uh, it's really up to Elon as to uh, when he feels the timing's right. But I would think that this event, yeah. especially being investor day, it would make sense. So yes. Hockey Day is asking, I'm confused. I think there's a typo in there. Yeah, I don't, I don't get what he's... What is Tesla's that. contract for the Giga Presses makes them first and lying all the time? Nope, don't know what that means, Hockey Day. Reword it. But uh, yeah, looking forward to this. Uh, hopefully, uh, we get uh, some uh, new information. Really hoping to hear about a third generation platform. We'll see if that happens today. I want to hear about new Gigafactory locations. That's what I want to hear about. And we're, we're, we are likely like to hear about Mexico, but, but they need another. Uh, I mean, now they have the major continents covered. So I, I kind of have this assumption that they need to get to 10 Gigafactories. Maybe my I said, question that assumption per, per continent, right? How many per continent did he say? Is that yeah, from Antarctica? Go Giga Canada! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if Tesla contracts with GigaPress machine manufacturer, keeps them first in line no matter how many are ordered by the company. Oh, yeah! Keeps, mm -hmm. them, keeps them at the head of the line. Like, we get first right to refusal. I like that. <laughs> They, they could they could secure themselves a contract like that because nobody else was even thinking about this before or yeah but there there's also those other what was it three or four many three other manufacturers that uh told elon no they wouldn't make something that big right so, now right, that I, they know it's possible they probably are changing their mind and yeah, regretting I, that I, and I, I if sure some other that... car company wants a, a deal they're probably knocking on the door yeah and oh. even if they don't lock them up, now they have to develop and learn how to do it. Whereas, yes. you know, Idra's already got that out of the way. Right. And on top of that, um, you know, I just said, you know, we'll try, we'll try. Mm -hmm. And yeah. before this, the only the only one that we heard of that publicized such a such a technology was Monroe. Said, hey, here's a demo. You guys really need to do this. And they're like, oh no, mm -hmm. no. At some point, he just shoved it in the corner of his shop, and he dusted off and showed it to us every now and then. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe some information about uh, Hardware 4 is going to come out today as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is tricky because, like Casey mentioned, how much do they want to Osborne themselves or not? Yeah. Unless they can say it's shipping today uh, and it's been on in every car. Oh, right. is this 
That's a new. Uh, that's a new frame. Yeah. Four twenty-seven currently. Yep. There we go. There we go. All right. Twenty-seven after uh, we have a winner. Oh, I can't turn up my stream volume. You'll have to do it yourself. Good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear it? The CFO. Good afternoon. Yes. My name is Zachary, Zachary Kirkhorn. Kirkhorn. I lead finance here at Tesla, and welcome to our investor day. Here in the audience at our global headquarters in Austin, Texas, we welcome you. Thank you for being here and thank you for traveling in. For those joining us virtually, thank you for being a part of the day today. So as we reflect back on the history of the company, there's been distinct phases of product advancement, technology innovation, and rapid volume growth. The most recent of which has been the global expansion and localization of the Model Y program. And so today, we want to talk about the future. We don't want to talk about this quarter or next quarter. We want to go further out into the future. And we've divided today's presentation into three parts, the first of which we're going to go macro. What does it take to convert Earth to sustainable energy generation and use? The second, we want That's to talk about Tesla's yeah. contribution to that global need. We're going to go function by function through the company, and you'll meet our entire leadership team, and we're going to get into the details of what those teams are doing as part of the broader goal. And then in the third part, we're going to bring it back up and talk about what this all means for the company as a whole. So before we get started, statements made in this presentation are forward-looking statements that are subject to risks and uh, lawyers speak. They do One have lawyers, yep. Full <laughs> page of it. So with that, let's 8.1. Part one, Elon Musk and Drew Baglino. Looks like everybody got a hat. All right, master plan part three. Yes. So. As uh, Zach was mentioning, the, the thing that I think is we wanted to convey, probably more, more importantly than anything else that we talk about here, is that there is a clear path to a sustainable energy earth. It's not, um, it doesn't require destroying uh, natural habitats. Uh, it doesn't uh, require us to be austere and stop using electricity and sort of be in the cold or anything. Um, the, the, the story, and I think it was held together quite well, and we'll be actually publishing a detailed white paper with all of our assumptions and calculations, is that there is, awesome. a, there is a clear path to a fully sustainable Earth uh, with abundance. In fact, you could support a civilization much bigger than Earth, than, than much more than the, the 8 billion humans, uh, could actually be uh, supported sustainably on Earth. And I'm, I'm just often shocked and surprised by how few people realize this. Um, most of the smart people I know actually don't see a, a, this clear path. They, they think that um, there's, there's not a path to a sustainable energy future 
or at least there's not one that uh, is sustainable at our current population, um, or that we'd have to resort to extreme measures. None of this is true. So we're going to walk through the, the calculations for how to create a sustainable energy civilization. Yeah. <clears throat> and to set the stage, today our energy economy, it's, let's be honest, it's sturdy and it's wasteful. Over 80% of global energy, primary energy, comes from fossil fuels, and only one-third of that global energy actually ends up delivering useful work or heat. This is the problem statement, but we're here to talk about the solution. Yeah, it's, it's like, if, for, for <clears throat> some of this I'm going to elaborate because there's, there's, there's a very wide range of technical expertise uh, out there from people who are like, you know, whatever, level nine wizards in the subject to people who do not do engineering at all. So uh, like when, if you have a gasoline car, you're, uh, you're, you're converting less than a third, uh, often maybe only 25% of the energy in the gasoline is converted into motion. The rest is turned into waste heat. That does no, doesn't do any good at all. And there's a lot of energy required even to get the oil out of the ground, to refine the oil, uh, and to transport the gasoline to the gas station. So when you, when you look at all that for a typical gasoline car is, is actually going to be using less than 20% fully considered of the uh, energy from the oil actually goes into motion. So this is a, when, when, I see people, when we see people doing calculations for what does it take to create a sustainable energy earth, they assume that the same energy amount is required for an, elect, for an, electri an electrified civilization versus a combustion civilization. This is not true. Mm -hmm. Because uh, most of the energy of combustion is waste heat. And even to get the fuel to combust in the first place and get it to the end use, there's a lot lost along the way. I mean, this mm -hmm. is the primary energy consumption, 165 petawatt hours a year. Petawatt hour is a trillion, uh, trillion kilowatt hours, so it's a large amount of energy. But the nice thing about an electrified economy, it, uh, there's a better way, we're going to talk about it, is that through end use efficiency and through efficiency along every step of the way, actually the total energy use halves. So this is one of the most enabling aspects of electrifying everything, uh, is that the sustainable energy economy is that much easier to accomplish. It's actually half the problem statement of the fossil fuel economy. Yeah, and we're being conservative here, so it could be better than half, but uh, we're, we're trying to have assumptions that are reasonable, not overly optimistic, in fact, slightly pessimistic. Uh, so it's really better than half, but just say for, it's, it's, it's easy to make the argument that we need half as much energy with an electric economy versus a, a combustion economy. Yep. Um, so how the master plan works? You want to talk uh, about yeah. that? Yeah. Um, so the, 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 the thing that is needed in, at very large scale that is not currently present is a vast amount of battery energy storage. Uh, our rough calculations are that this is about 240 terawatt hours, or 240,000 gigawatt hours. Um, this is a lot of batteries, but it is actually a very achievable amount. Uh, we'll go into details on that. Yep. So uh, that's a combination of electric vehicles and stationary storage. So if you've got solar or wind, you've got to store the energy when the wind is not blowing, the sun is not shining. Um, and so we're assuming sort of an eight to one ratio of uh, 
stored energy to power. So 30 terawatt hours of power, uh, 30 terawatts of power. Um, our actual uh, capital expenditure calculation for manufacturing investment is more like uh, six trillion, but we, you know, we made it higher to make it 10 trillion. And this um, is across mining, refining, you know, battery factories, recycling, vehicle factories, all the things that we're going to talk about needing to invest in to build this sustainable energy economy. Yeah. Now, if you look at the total world economy, it's just under 100 trillion. So if this was spread out, say, over 10 years, it would be 1% of the global economy. Over 20 years, uh, it would be half a percent Very of doable. the global economy. So this is, uh, yeah, not a big number relative to the global economy. Um, as Drew mentioned, you need about half as much energy with an electric economy versus a combustion economy. And in terms of wind and solar, how much land would be used? It's less than 0.2% of the land area of Earth. Um, like generally, people don't realize quite how much energy is reaching us from the sun. Um, it's roughly a gigawatt per square kilometer. Um, and you know, the sun doesn't shine all the time, but it's, uh, if you multiply that by, say, uh, four to get the continuous power, four or five, uh, then that, that, that gives you the land area of solar. And you can put wind and solar often in the same place. So a lot of places that currently have wind, you could have solar there and you double your energy. You can elsewhere. also put wind offshore. It doesn't even need to yeah. be on land, so wind is even more flexible. You could put solar offshore too. Yep. So Earth is 70% water. <laughs> um, anyway, the point is that um, with, a, with a pretty, really a remarkably small amount of, of Earth's land area, we can go fully sustainable. Um, yeah. And, so. and, and from a, do the resources and raw materials exist to support this transition? Uh, we'll, we'll go through that in detail, but we do not see any insurmountable resource challenges at all. In fact, in the end, we should be um, mining less ore to accomplish this economy than we currently do with the fossil fuel economy, and we're going to talk through that. Yeah, just to emphasize that again, the electrified economy will require less mining than the current economy does. Yes. Less. Yeah. Not more. Good point. Okay. Um, so this is the plan, and now we'll get into a little more of the details of the plan. Basically, five areas of work. Um, first, renewable power, the existing grid. Second, switch to, the, to electric vehicles. Third, switch homes, businesses, and industry heating to heat pumps. Uh, fourth, high temp heat delivery uh, and storage for high temp uh, industrial and chemical processes. And uh, a little bit of green hydrogen in there for chemical processes that need hydrogen. Um, uh -oh. And finally, sustainable uh, fuel planes and boats. These are the five areas, and we're going to go into detail on all of them. Yeah, I mean, my personal opinion is that as we improve the energy density of batteries, you'll see all transportation uh, go fully electric, um, with the exception of rockets. That's awkward. Um, but, uh, but you can make the, for the fuel with uh, CO2 and water. So you can make methane with CO2 and water. So, and in you fact, can do that with just electricity. So. Yes, exactly. So. Uh, so, in fact, on Mars, if we hopefully get there at some point, um, the atmosphere is CO2, and there's water ice uh, throughout Mars, so you can take the uh, CO2 and H2O and turn that into CH4, which is methane and oxygen. So, ultimately, even rockets uh, can be electrified. So, first, 
uh, repowering the existing grid with renewables. And this is going to be a consistent theme. You'll see our estimates for the number of terawatt hours, terawatts, and trillions of investment at the bottom of the page. You know, this is already actively occurring in front of us. 60% of the generation added to the US grid was solar in 2022. And actually, on a year-on-year -year basis, solar deployment is growing 50% year-on-year uh, as of 2022. So this is a, this is a serious uh, 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 upswing. And if we continue this trend, this is going to be behind us before we even know it. Yeah. Um, second, <coughs> switching to electric vehicles. Again, 21% uh, reduction in fossil fuel use by doing this alone. Obviously, Tesla is heavily engaged in this activity, as along with many others. Um, overall, EV production grew 59% year-on-year in 2022. And EVs hit an amazing 10% market share. I mean, it's an awesome milestone. I, I'm Double digits. excited to see that. I, I gotta yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is uh, obviously happening very rapidly. Um, and I mean, I think really, really all costs will go to uh, fully electric um, and autonomous. Um, and so riding a non-autonomous uh, gasoline car is going to be analogous to riding a horse and using a flip phone. Uh, that's basically going to be the situation. And we actually uh, took a somewhat conservative assumption here in terms of how many batteries are required, because the more the fleet is autonomous, the, the, the fewer, the, the smaller the fleet needs to be, just from a utility basis. So we're not accounting for all of those benefits, or really much of those benefits at all in this number. Um, and what does this fleet look like? You know, just rough view from our perspective, of course, we could be wrong, but you know, uh, you can see the sort of breakdown of the fleet by millions of vehicles. Um, you know, our goal is to do 20 million electric vehicles a year. Yeah. Fewer vehicles will be needed, at least passenger vehicles, uh, with autonomy. So um, there's some debate as to what that number is, but it's, uh, it's some number less than the number of vehicles needed today. There's roughly 2 billion. Uh, RoboTaxi in next. Uh, <coughs> yes, it was. 700 million vehicles. Yeah, so what we show here is actually. I or delivery van. 4 million or, or so. So we're, yeah. we're, we're represent 1.4 billion, I mean, or so. So a smaller fleet. And you know the, the numbers are here in this presentation are around 85 million vehicles a year produced. Yeah, that looks like a van, Patrick. A how we're thinking about this. Again, we're going to put all these assumptions mm -hmm. up online and you know, encourage people's thoughts. Yeah. So yeah, so we're basically heading rapidly towards an electric or autonomous future. <laughs> Exciting. Yeah. Um, and one of the reasons why EVs are so enabling is this end-use efficiency point. Um, te Tesla Model 3, it's four times more efficient from the well to wheel than uh, a Toyota Corolla. And that's all about the efficiency of getting the electricity to the into the car in a sustainable en uh, energy economy, and then how efficient the car is uh, in transferring that stored uh, energy to motion on the road. Um, when compared to the engine in the Toyota Corolla and all the you know, extraction, refining, transmission, distribution of the gasoline to the Toyota Corolla. And just for, uh, this is a fun reference, Model 3 can drive over a mile on the energy it takes to boil a pot of water for pasta, and then it can drive another mile on the energy it took to cook the pasta. And that pasta is one pound, and Model 3 is like 4,000 pounds. Just to give you a sense of just like, what, like, it really doesn't use a lot of energy to move a Model 3, that 4,000 pound object, down the road. <laughs> yeah, also, heat is a lot more energy than motion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But people, you know, you just boil a pot of water, you don't even think about it. You know, it's just interesting how efficient these cars are. Um, next, 
switching to heat pumps in homes, businesses, and industry. Um, you know, right now heat pumps meet 10% of building heating needs. Install rates growing 10% year on year. It really needs to accelerate. Heat pumps can serve, you know, heat applications up to 200C in, in, in businesses and industry. And from an investment perspective, as you can see on this page, it's actually the lowest hanging fruit in terms of displacing fossil fuels. Um, you might be saying, well, wh what exactly is a heat pump? So, 200C. <laughs> um, heat pumps don't move heat, don't create heat, they, they move heat. Uh, when you think about like the natural gas furnished in your house, like it's, it is generating heat itself, but what the heat pump is doing is actually moving heat from outside of your house into your house. They're just an air conditioner or a re refrigerator in reverse. So we're surrounded by heat pumps. There's like, you know, they're all over this factory. They're in your house. Um, and, and all this really is, is about bringing them to displace all the fossil fuel he heating in all of the homes business in, in the industry that we can. And from an end use efficiency perspective, there's a three, three times reduction in the total energy required to heat these buildings. So a real obvious thing to do. Yeah, heat pumps. They're in our, our cars, yeah, now as default. And yep. at some point, we might make a heat pump for our home, so. Yeah, maybe. maybe Tease. Maybe. Um, <laughs> ne next, a little bit more detail on electrifying uh, high temp uh, sort of industrial chemical processes. So over 50% of industrial- This is one place where hydrogen makes sense. 400C, where, you know, cement, steel, fertilizers, chemicals, plastics, metals refining all need like 1500C. So we need a solution here. Um, Ultimately, it's purpose-built equipment that enables electrification. You know, carbon graphite is stable up to 2800C. There's other options in the 1500C range, like silicon carbide, other, other materials. So the, the idea here is you create and store heat when renewable power is available. If this is a sustainable energy econ economy, you know, renewable energy is intermittent. Peak of the day, you've got more generation than you need. You make a bunch of heat then, and then you transfer that heat into the industrial process 24 hours a day using the stored heat you created when the sun or the wind was blowing. That's the concept here. And then on the hydrogen side, we also need green hydrogen to decarbonize metals and chemical refining processes. This is things like ammonia, uh, making steel. You know, there's roughly 120 million tons of hydrogen sourced from fossil fuel today to do these things. Um, and hydrogen can also directly replace coal, which is currently used in a ton of steel production through a process called directly reducing iron you can replace blast furnaces with uh, a hydrogen-reducing, uh, direct-reduced iron furnace. Um, and this is the way to eliminate fossil fuels from these aspects of the economy. And the CO2 This is system. the way. Yeah, so I, I mean, um, some of this, uh, there's like room to disagree, but some amount of hydrogen is needed for industrial processes. My personal opinion is that hydrogen will not be used uh, meaningfully in transport, uh, but, um, and shouldn't be. Um, it's, if you're going to use a chemical uh, fuel, you should uh, use CH4, not H2. Uh, but, uh, but nonetheless, it is needed for industrial processes and can be produced uh, just by just splitting water, essentially. I mean, something that's been done for decades and decades. Yeah. This is not, you know, rocket technology. <laughs> yeah. How much of a capital difference is it, though? Um, and lastly, a small part of the pie, but a necessary part of the pie, is sustainably fueling planes and boats. Um, shipping accounts for 3% of global CO2. It's ripe for electrification. Even with lithium iron phosphate, long haul ships can be fully battery powered. So that's a, a great opportunity to uh, electrify. Um, energy density is a little bit harder for planes, but short haul is doable today. With some improvements, we'll get long haul underway. But even, even in the meantime, we can leverage sustainable aviation fuels produced and stored using excess renewable electricity. There's a lot of work going on in this space. 
um, and it's, it's, it's not, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, to, to really get uh, long-range aircraft and um, long-range shipping to use uh, lithium-ion, uh, you need to redesign the ship and not just... Um, or the plane. And the plane. Uh, to take advantage of the fact that it is a new uh, source of uh, energy. It's, it's, it's a different architecture. So you, you, just like with an electric car, you wouldn't just you know, take a gasoline car and stick a battery in it. That's very suboptimal. Um, it's much uh, more efficient to have the battery be the structure of the car. Um, and uh, you know, make it as make it mass efficient and optimized for battery for batteries. The same, if if that's done with aircraft, uh, I think you can get long range aircraft uh, at around with with sales at around 450 watt hours per kilogram, which you can buy it right now. Actually, it's expensive, but I think uh, that that price will come down. So when we stack up all of these efforts, uh, we end up with the numbers we shared at the beginning of the presentation: 30 terawatts. 240 terawatt hours, $10 trillion. And you're, you may be saying, like, I need some context. Is this feasible? Spoiler alert, it's entirely feasible. <laughs> <laughs> um, just looking at it from a growth rate, growth rate perspective, how much do we need to grow the deployment of these technologies? We're talking about only a 3x uh, growth rate in solar and wind deployment. Um, solar is already growing at uh, a breakneck pace, as is wind. This gap is going to be closed really quickly. Um, when we look at uh, the electric vehicles, they have to grow 11x. Well, they, they grew 60% year on year last year. That growth rate is also going to close pretty, pretty darn, that, that mm -hmm. gap is going to close pretty quickly as well. And lastly, storage. Um, you know, Tesla's energy storage business has grown at 65% CAGR since 2016. The global you know, energy storage business is, is, is accelerating pace as well. I mean, all these gaps are going to close, especially as, as this momentum of the transition to sustainable energy uh, accelerates. Um, and of course, our goal on this page is 20 million EVs per year and one t uh, terawatt hour of stationary storage per year, uh, basically as, as soon as we can. <laughs> um, and then, you know, what about this investment? How do I have a reference point on this investment? You know, Elon mentioned it's 10% of, you know, uh, one year's world GDP. Another way of thinking about it is how does it compare to what we're investing, like what we invested last year in the fossil fuel infrastructure? Uh, mm -hmm. and, and it's 60% of that investment. So actually building this sustainable energy uh, economy is, is less than extending the fossil fuel economy from a year-over-year -year investment basis. So very doable. Um, when we look towards uh, does this fit on the planet? Absolutely less than 0.2% of land. As a reference point, um, the total uh, land area intensively farmed today is 12.5% of all land. So, I mean, you drive around, you see some farms, but you don't see them everywhere. This is, this is an order of magnitude, more than an order of magnitude difference between farming and what we're talking about for sustainable energy land. Yeah, it, and, and it doesn't need to displace uh, farmland of or, yeah. you know, forests or um, jungle or any any kind of uh, ecological preserve, um, it can be used in, in uh, very sparsely populated desert regions, yeah. uh, barren areas. Yeah, uh, solar can go on your roof. Not really fit for development or otherwise. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, 0.2 percent can fit into a lot of places. Yeah, it's it's there's, there's essentially uh, no meaningful uh, ecological impact. In fact, um, transition to a sustainable energy economy economy would result in a 
substantial reduction in current ecological impact. It's a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, and what about on the mineral extraction side? So this is a cartoon that sort of gives you a sense for all the ore and the like extracted uh, minerals that are coming out of the earth every year. It's about 68 gigatons. Um, so each truck is a gigaton. What does this look like when we're in a sustainable energy economy? Looks like that. The fossil fuel extraction disappears. We replace it with the materials required to f fulfill the sustainable energy economy. It actually reduces. Now, it's not to say that we don't need to continue to explore, you know, bring on mining and refining for the sort of specific materials for the sustainable energy economy. We do. But the investment in mass flows are all very achievable, just looking at what is already happening on the planet. Like, this is nothing out of scale of what has been done and is already being done. Um, and then when we calculate it on a sort of, you know, element by element basis, the resources are there to support the transition. You know, this is cumulative demand to move in the sustainable energy economy direction until 2050 relative to USGS resources today. You know, th we're not breaking the resource bank for any of these materials. And then when we look at what really happens as we move forward, history teaches the more we look, the more we find. What people think happens is, oh, there's this many resources, next year there's gonna be less because we're gonna extract them. What actually happens is, as we uh, extract resources, we, we find more. And you can see on the right what has actually occurred with the key materials to the sustainable energy economy. Since 2000, as the sustainable energy economy has been growing and Tesla's been growing and all the industries around us have been growing, the actual resource availability has increased, not decreased. Y yeah, it's, uh, <coughs> there still seems to be quite a bit of confusion about, the, about lithium. Lithium is extremely common. It's one of the most common elements on Earth. Um, there is, there's no country that has a monopoly on lithium yep. uh, or even close to it. Um, there's, there's enough lithium uh, ore in the United States to electrify all of Earth if, if, the, if the United States was the only place producing lithium. There's enough domestic uh, material to ele electrify uh, Earth. Um, it's very common. Um, the the, the limita limiting factor uh, is the refining of the lithium into battery-grade lithium hydroxide or lithium carbonate. That's the actual limiting factor. And the same is true for these other materials. Yes. And, and this is, again, these are not like crazy technologies. It's just the investments need to ma be made. And the investments, they're not gigantic. They just need to happen. Right. Um, Nickel is maybe, the, 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 of, of them all, the trickiest one to, to solve. But as we, sh we showed with the graph there, maybe need like 30% of the world's nickel, known nickel reserves. So and the nickel reserves have actually grown since yes. 2000. So. Uh, th there is more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Um, and you only need nickel for uh, basically aircraft, long-range boats, um, and very long-range cars or trucks. Uh, but the, the vast majority of the heavy lifting uh, for electrification will be uh, iron-based uh, uh, cells. And the Earth is, iron is actually literally the most common element on Earth. So a uh, little trivia point, if you say like, what is Earth made of? By mass, it is most it, it is made of iron more than anything else, and second, uh, oxygen, and then uh, ev everything else after that. So, basically, we're a, a muddy rust ball, is what Earth is. Um, so, an, an iron cathode is sort of you're definitely not going to run out of iron. There's so much iron, it's insane. Um, so, that, that's it, uh, yeah. So. Yeah, and ultimately, you know, this resource. 
ex extraction. We, we go through this effort, we build these batteries, um, and then we recycle these batteries. So ultimately, we're, we're, we're doing this to build this sustainable energy economy, but the maintenance amount of, of ore that we require is, is really an order of magnitude or more, less, because of recycling. You don't get that um, with fossil so fuel. So in the end, a sustainable energy economy is within our reach, and we should accelerate it. Yeah, I mean, so th 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 this is really the, the main message of today. Um, and I really wanted today to be not just about Tesla investors who own stock, but uh, really anyone who is an investor in Earth. Um, and the, what we're trying to that should be all of us. a message of hope and optimism. Um, and and hope, optimism that is based on, on actual physics and, and, and real calculations, not, it's not wishful thinking. Uh, Earth can and will move to a sustainable energy economy and will do so in your lifetime. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. And uh, I just want to welcome up uh, Lars and Franz to the stage. Part one was heavy. Let's see what they did for two and three. Yes. Hi. Hi, I'm Franz. I um, lead design at Tesla. And I'm Lars. Uh, I've been doing vehicles with Franz for almost 13 years now. So I joined Tesla in 2008 to vertically integrate design into the company. It didn't exist before. It was a pretty small team. It was tasked with designing the most beautiful, innovative, and well-engineered vehicles on the planet. No small task in 2008. There was not a lot going on in the EV sector then. Since then, we focused on constant improvement in cost, efficiency, innovation, things that you'll continue to hear about today, um, while continuing to design the most desirable cars. Today, we produce cars differently than we did 10 years ago. But the end result is always an exciting, futuristic, and desirable set of vehicles. Back then, we only had a handful of designers and engineers like myself, but we had a great vision to radically change transportation. So back in 2008, where we were designing Model S, we didn't have a factory. In fact, we had a really small engineering team and a tiny design team. But that allowed design to lead all the conversations. It let us innovate forward-thinking ideas, like how do you fit seven people into a sedan? Or how do you make door handles disappear into the, into the doors? Or putting a huge touchscreen into the center of the, the vehicle, something that had never been done before. And then we won Motor Trend Car of the Year. Yes, and we won <laughs> Motor Trend Car of the Year in 2013. Our first, our first you know, great award, first car. Um, pretty, good, pretty good start, kind of a home run, I think. Um, but that, that whole process resulted in a linear process that you see on the screen. We, we designed first. Then we engineered, and then we figured out how to manufacture it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important. When we were designing the car together, we didn't even know where we were going to build it. And so we came up with... I didn't even know Lars when we were doing <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, we didn't... So once we got Fremont, we were very fortunate, and we figured out the manufacturing solution, sort of like we were flying a plane and putting the wings and building the engine at the same time. So we knew we had to do better. Yeah, we knew we had to be better in order to scale. And as part of the master plan that you've read, Model 3 needed to be a smaller, more efficient, and more affordable version of Model S. 
but it had to be equally great. It had to have all the things that people loved in their Model S or Model X, and, but be much more affordable. And so we, we approached the process a little bit differently than the first time around. Now we had teams that we all worked together, so we were able to combine design, engineering, and manufacturing process all at the same time. But somewhere along the way, we changed the manufacturing process to be fully automated. And so we leaned into this whole new way of manufacturing a car, but we had already engineered it. So things didn't quite go as well as planned. It was an amazing product, but it landed us in production hell. Many of us who lived through that carry those battle scars. It was a great idea, but it wasn't the right timing. Like Franz said, automating something that we designed to be built manually is super hard. And we have many, many failed examples of that at the Fremont factory that we ripped out. But some of them eventually still work. This is one I actually worked on with a small team of engineers. It's still running today. And some of the engineers that came by said we couldn't do it or no longer with the company. But it's running, and it's running faster than ever. Oh, snap. So we kind of self-imposed constraints on the design when we were doing it to be built manually, and we really didn't think about it. But despite all that, Model 3 is the best-selling EV ever. Yeah, and Model Y, which is derived from Model 3, is about to pass that. But we knew we had to improve the process further. And with Cybertruck, we designed a vehicle around a vision that actually started with the manufacturing process. And in this case, the materials dictated the design. Forming full hard stainless steel isn't rocket science, but it sure isn't easy. And it limited the way we could do it. Yeah, absolutely. It really forced us to think about designing something um, in, in a way that you couldn't no normally stamp panels, you couldn't form them in a traditional way. So you ended up with very linear um, bending processes that are just not in automotive kind of language of manufacturing today. But it, it actually created a very efficient and process and one of the most dynamic designs ever, I believe. It's definitely something that's going to change the road landscape. Hopefully you guys saw it down there and you experienced it. It's definitely real. Those are real trucks. We're on our way to build them. But what that stainless steel opportunity did for us, it has let us rethink the factory footprint. We don't stamp those. That's a huge part of it. We don't even paint them. So our footprint got smaller, and we started to think about innovative ways to take those constraints and make great products. But that constraint didn't really change the end result of the truck. Um, it's a super dynamic truck, and it has all the functionality you would expect out of any of the other competitive trucks. And the best thing about it, it's coming this year. So ideally, after all that, we would design, engineer, manufacture, and plan for automation happening together. It gives us the opportunity to question requirements. This is something that is fundamentally only available at Tesla. In the places I used to work and the top manufacturing companies in the world, they don't sit together. Yeah, we are one I, team. Nowhere I know has all these teams together thinking about these processes from the very beginning. In fact, all of those engineering teams, manufacturing, design, automation, they're all in one work. They all report to one person. We can't point fingers at each other, so we have to solve them together, which is the best way to innovate. A traditional way of making a vehicle is this. You stamp it, you do build a body in white, you paint it, and you do final assembly. And what's interesting is these shops are dictated by the, the, the organizational structures that exist. And they're dictated by the boundaries that exist in the factories that are laid out. 
If something goes wrong in final assembly, you block the whole line, and you end up with buffering in between. This is at the tail end of its manufacturing optimization. Henry Ford first invented this assembly line in 1922. It's been 100 years, and it's really hard to make a change after 100 years. And when you watch it happen, it's actually really silly to a guy like me. You take all these stamp panels, you put them together, then you put them in a framing station, you build a body that looks something like a car, you put the doors on, and then you paint them. Once you get the color, you take the doors off, and then you start putting the interior inside the car. It comes in through the openings that already exist. I wish it went in like this big piece like yeah. this, but there's actually people <laughs> coming in and out of the car. There's awkward you know, movements. Then we lift the car up. We put stuff from underneath it. We put it down. Then we put the seats yeah, in the, the doors car. Doors back on. And finally, <laughs> we close it all out with glass, and we bring those doors that went away for a trip, and we put them back in the car. Most of the time, we're doing this with a big, giant car and moving it and doing really nothing to it at all. What's funny, though, in this kind of whole process is that just recently, Toyota just called this an engineering work of art. True. The Model Y. That, that was humbling. But at Tesla, it's not good enough. If we're going to scale the way we want to do, we have to rethink manufacturing again. It's part of the master plan. We have to make another step change in cost. We started this on Model Y when we made these huge giga castings. And we deleted Alex? hundreds of parts. We simplified assembly with the Model Y structural battery, where we decided the floor should be a part of the car. The battery is the floor. We put the seats in the interior on the battery, and we bring it up through a big open hole, and we assemble it. And this allowed us to do things in parallel, fully rethinking the process and reducing the final assembly line by about 10%. And we thought, maybe we could do this other places. Yeah, I mean, in, in a way, the, the, the constraints become part of the solution rather than a problem. So when you think about what I'm trying to say, I really want to hammer this home. When you have a car Model that's next. five meters long, and yeah. you have people working around it like we did in Model 3, and we change that to this process where we take different parts of the car, and we can do more at the same time, like we did with the Model Y structural battery pack. What you see here is us doing that on the front part of the vehicle or the rear part of the vehicle. That means we can get more people working on the car, or robots, working on it at the same time. That means we have better operator density, less time doing nothing. I call that space-time efficiency. It has nothing to do with quantum mechanics. We can have that conversation later. But we get 44% more operator density, which means more work, less time walking back to the station, 30% improvement in space-time efficiency. And because we're not building it in and out of the car with those slow movements of those robots I showed you from production hell, when we go to automate it, it's going to be a lot easier. In the end, that will probably look something like this, where we balance parallel and series manufacturing in a way where we only do things that are necessary, with a much shorter final line, blocking a lot less of the entire rest of the factory so we can optimize material flow using the best practices. And what that means, it's going to look something like this where we build all the sides of the cars independently. We only paint what we need to. And then we assemble the parts of the car once and only once. We put them where they need to go. The interior is attached from a bottom-up or a top-down uh, strategy, so there's more access for those robots and people. We aren't moving heavy objects around and doing nothing to it. And it means we're doing more work on the car more of the time. 
And then when we take it, all of these tested sub-assemblies and we put them together, we finally assemble the car only one time, putting the sides on with all of their parts to a front and rear that was already assembled, carrying the floor in with the seats, and finally boxing it out with the doors one time, just like Cybertruck. So in the end, you get the same car, but it's not going to be a Model Y. Yeah, this is not. Yeah. This is a Model Y for illustration, not the next-gen vehicle. Um. In the end, what does that mean? To increase the scale and adoption of electric vehicles on the orders of magnitude that we just showed you, we have to make constraints part of the solution. It leads us to greater than 40% reduction in footprint, which means we can build factories faster with less capex and more output per, per unit. Faster, less capex, more output per unit dollar. Zach's going to go into more details on this later, but it also means through this innovation and some of what my other engineering colleagues are going to talk to you about in the future, we'll reduce costs as much as 50%. This is the two-for-one concept you hear me and Elon talking about on earnings calls. Yeah, so I think our track record proves that we can deliver the best cars, and we deliver the best cars in spite of, because of these constraints. And I'd love to really show you what I mean and unveil the next-gen car. <laughs> You're going to have to trust me on that until later. He's not going to do it. Um, just, and I promise we'll always be delivering exciting, compelling, and desirable vehicles. Like Another tease. Have we ever not? We yeah. always do. But what else is Tesla known for? Speed. So with that, I want to bring on Colin, who's in charge of making our cars go fast. Thank you, Lars. Is this still part two or part Thank three? You, Franz. My name is Colin Campbell, and I have the real privilege Sweet. of leading powertrain engineering here at Tesla. We make the fastest cars that you can buy for the money, whether they're electric or gas. And the Model S Plaid that we're looking at here, it has more than 1,000 horsepower. And pound per pound, the motors in that car are as powerful as jet engines. Our cars are super fun. People absolutely love driving in them. And the other thing that you probably all know about our powertrains is that they're efficient. Our cars go 25 to 30% further than other EVs in our class for the same amount of efficiency. But at Tesla, efficiency means more than just reducing how much energy the cars use. It's about how we develop, how we manufacture, how we refine, and how we scale the powertrain. Now, the Model 3 and Y powertrain is a great example of this broader meaning of efficiency. So since we launched it back in 2017, we've continuously improved that powertrain and the factory that builds it. So the drive unit, the engine of the car, is 20% lighter for the same power. We use 25% less heavy rare earths than when we started. And the powertrain, the powertrain factory, which is behind me today, is 75% smaller and 65% cheaper than the one that we originally built. And what I really want to emphasize is that we did all of this without compromise. Our cars are just as powerful, they go just as far, they cost the same or less, and the factories have the same output. So how did we do that? We did it by designing the entire vehicle and the entire factory together as one company. And this sets Tesla apart. We have small and highly capable teams. And to make a critical decision, we can have the battery cell chemists, the mechanical engineers, the manufacturing engineers, the supply chain team, 
the automation designers, the software programmers, all in one room, working together in real time. And that allows us to make decisions that are best for the whole car and to make them really fast. And that approach is unlike traditional automotive engineering, which is really fractured. And if you were to go buy like a premium German electric car, the engineers who designed the drive inverter in that car, they did not work for that car company. They worked for a contractor. And at Tesla, we designed the entire car and the factory that builds it. And I want to highlight a few examples of what we've been able to do in-house thanks to that unique approach. So inside the charger of your Tesla are transistor packages. And that's at the top of your screen here. And every electron that moves you down the road flows through one of these packages. We designed our own custom package, which is what you're seeing here. And we can extract twice as much heat out of that package as what we could buy off the shelf. And so what does that mean? It means that the, silicar the silicon carbide wafer that's inside those packages can be much smaller. And silicon carbide is an amazing semiconductor, but it's also expensive, and it's really hard to scale. So using less of it is a big win for us. And then on top of that, orchestrating all of these transistors and making them switch in the right ways is computationally extremely intensive. It used to require four microprocessors, which are shown here in the bottom left. We have developed our own custom microprocessor. It's purpose-built for high-power electronics. It's half the cost, and it does, in just one, the job of all of those four. And these are just two examples of many that I could use to showcase our expertise in high-power electronics. And that expertise has allowed us to take the cost of the chargers that were in our Model S when we launched it in 2012, both the cost and the mass, and cut both of those in half. And even more important, power electronics are central not just to our cars. They are also central to our superchargers and to our energy storage products. And Rebecca and Mike will be talking more about that. So in addition to the work that we've done in software and hardware, we've also done a lot of work in-house on software. So this is the drive unit for Model 3 and Y. And if we take a cross-section, we see the stator and the rotor. And they're responsible for the core function of the drive unit, which is converting electricity into motion. And our custom software lets us simulate the rotating magnetic field that is responsible for that conversion. And getting that simulation exactly right, it's central to the cost, the weight, the size, and even the sound of the drive unit. And now, you can buy software that will do all of this, but our tools are faster, and they're more accurate, and that was not easy to do. And that allows us to quickly iterate through millions of possible drive unit designs to find the best one. I want to highlight one more area where Tesla really excels because we integrate work that is often farmed out. So, when you are making a new product, it's not enough to think about the product itself. You have to think about how you're going to make it at scale. So Tesla, our powertrain, and our powertrain manufacturing equipment is both designed under one roof. The engineers who are designing the motor, they are in the same room as the engineers who are designing the machine that's going to put that motor together. And that collaboration pushes us from day one to design products that are not only high performance, but are really easy to assemble. So all of this expertise that we have in the powertrain team, in hardware, in software, in manufacturing, it's going to have a major impact on our next platform. In our next powertrain, 
those silicon carbide transistors that I mentioned that are key component but expensive, we figured out a way to use 75% less without compromising the performance or the efficiency of the car. And of course, we know that battery cell supply is one of the constraints on the scalability of EVs right now. Our new powertrain is compatible with any battery chemistry. And that will give us great flexibility in battery sourcing. If we want to make EVs more accessible to people, they have to be cheaper. We've reduced the drive unit cost to about $1,000. And we don't think any other automaker is even close to that number. Finally, the bigger a factory is, the longer it takes to build. All if we can build the cost. same number of cars from a smaller factory, we are going to be able to scale EV production faster. Our next powertrain factory is 50% smaller than the one that's behind me today, even though it has the same capacity. Nice. All of these improvements, Mexico? I think, are going to be transformative for the adoption of EVs and our ability mm. to scale them. There's one more thing. And they I have the to land to build it already in Texas. So I talked about how we had reduced the amount of rare earth in our powertrains. And as the world transitions to clean energy, the demand for rare earth is really increasing dramatically. And not only is it going to be a little hard to meet that demand, but mining that rare earth, it has environmental and health risks. So we want to do even better than this. We have designed our next drive unit, which uses a permanent magnet motor, to not use any rare earth materials at all. So how does all this fit into the master plan? We can make lower cost products that are still efficient and compelling, and we can make them at scale. We're going to use less of constrained commodities, silicon carbide, rare earths. We're going to build them all in compact and high output factories that are easy, uh, easy for us to build quickly. We're going to make that easy to scale powertrains all the way up to the levels that Drew and Elon mentioned at the beginning. And this achievement, like all of the achievements that I mentioned today, it's only possible because of the incredible people on our powertrain teams. They are absolutely committed to the cause of sustainable energy, and that is why we can do what no other company can do. Thank you. Period. Yeah, we can do what no other company can do. Mic drop. So next time, <laughs> my colleagues, Bannon, David Lau. Thanks, Colin. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to uh, Texas. Pictured here is the low-voltage system of a Model S from 2012. This car was primarily designed with vendor source controllers integrated by Tesla. There are over 300 volt low-voltage devices that encompass everything from the mundane, like the light in the glove box, to the complicated, like the infotainment computer, to the safety critical, like the airbags, steer-by-wire, and brake-by-wire. The low-voltage harness is built from individual wires cut to length, crimped, and inserted into connectors, a manual process that is uh, tedious, error-prone, and doesn't scale well. Going forward, we want to reduce the size and complexity of the harness and enable automated manufacturing. These wire harnesses introduce extraordinary complications, especially in the early stages of development and bring-up of a vehicle, because when we're trying to bring up this entire system and we see that it's not working properly, we don't know whether it's a problem with the software, with the controller, the processor, any of the endpoints in this entanglement of wires. And so we have to go and debug everything all at once. Um, and Pete's going to tell us about how we're going to make it better. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm going to talk briefly about a few things that we've changed over the years since the Model S. With the Model 3, Tegra, Tesla started designing an increasing share of our controllers by merging controllers together. And we were able to simplify the design with a significant reduction in wire count and weight. Um, going from S to 3, we reduced the wire harness uh, by 17 kilograms uh, compared to Model S. And this is a pretty big deal. And just to put that into context, our VP of engineering, Lars, will deliver a, a bottle of your favorite spirit to your desk if you manage to save a kilogram of weight from the car. So this improvement cost him quite a lot. Did we, did we skip one? Yeah. Um, Paid the in Model liquor. 3 controllers were enhanced and, and built into Model Y. Those improved controllers were then moved back into Model 3 when we introduced the heat pump. At that point, we had uh, shared controllers across both cars, which helped simplify our supply chain. Those Model 3 and Y controller designs were then updated and enhanced for the new versions of Model S and X that we introduced in 2021. For Cybertruck, we are now designing 85% of the controllers in the car. For the next-gen platform, we're going to finish the job and be designing 100% of the controllers to give us full control of the design and the supply chain at the component level. Having full control of the supply chain at the component level has been critical to Tesla over the last few years as the supply constraints have uh, hampered our ability to build cars. And with that control comes control over all the software, which enables us to develop features and functionality that we never even dreamed of at the time we designed the hardware. So that's why you see software in your car is getting better and better over time in ways that we didn't even think of when we designed the hardware in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sentry mode is one of my favorite last-minute changes. <laughs> uh, with the introduction of Model 3 in 2017, we deleted relays and fuses from the car in favor of e-fuses. E-fuses replace moving parts with solid-state transistors. They provide fine-grained control of the power system uh, to software and allow software to do advanced things like load shedding in the car under adverse conditions. E-fuses also allow for software-controlled retries for transient faults, and they all allow for detailed monitoring of the power system over time. Yeah, what, the theme you hear a lot about today is software-controlled hardware. And when I think about that in my team, software-controlled hardware is fundamentally about being able to sidestep what otherwise would have been static trade-offs between one attribute or another in a piece of hardware. We are able, with software, to in, in, instill intelligence, context awareness, and context-specific behavior into what otherwise would have been a piece of hardware that had to get optimized for one type of scenario. We get more of everything. In 2022, we completed the transition from lead-acid batteries to lithium-ion batteries, and, uh, and which use a new toolless connector. We expect lithium-ion batteries to last for the life of the car, so we don't expect anyone to wake up to a dead battery uh, ever again. This eliminates a major source of uh, failures for our car. And the toolless connector uh, makes it easier to service the car, and it also includes a, a software feature to allow uh, validation that the connector has been properly installed at the end of a service event, which removes another source of failures in our cars. Obviously, the mass and volume savings are also significant, uh, which is super helpful. Um, at Tesla, we're always trying to improve every single component in the car, and a nice example of that is the 15-inch display that was originally shipped in the 2017 Model 3. Um, over time, the cost of the display has gone down 24%. We've been able to reduce wow. the weight by 12%, and we've reduced the power by 33%. 
At the same time, we've increased the brightness of the display by 50% and improved the color accuracy. So this is one of our favorite things at Tesla is to make a component cheaper and better. At Tesla, the drive to improve efficiency in the car is never ending. I think of it as like peeling a carrot. You just take a swipe at it, a little bit falls off, doesn't really make much of a difference. But if you just keep at it, over time it accumulates into a pretty significant improvement. One of the changes that we're looking to make right now is to change something that's been steady for the last 60 years, 12 volts. Um, 12 volts has been, uh, as I said, for 60 years. The demand for power in the car has been steadily increasing to the point where we now have to have pretty large wires to drive over 200 amps of current around the car, which increases the mast and cost. With Cybertruck and all future Tesla platforms, we will be moving to 48 volts. This reduces the current needed by a factor of four. And since power loss in the harness is resistance times the square of the current, a 4x reduction in current leads to a 16x reduction in lost power while distributing energy in the car. Uh, that allows for smaller wires, smaller e-fuses, and smaller controllers. It also allows us to make those heat sinks smaller, or in many cases, remove it completely, all benefiting the car in terms of mass and weight. Big improvement. Eight volts is the future for low voltage design at Tesla and likely the rest of the industry in due course. We welcome and encourage other OEMs and the entire supplier network to join us on this evolution. Mm -hmm, you bet. Uh, the number of wires in the car is driven by the number of endpoints that need to be powered and controlled. In the past, centralized control has led for wires spanning the entire car. For Cybertruck design, we have moved to a local controller where the wire is connected to the nearest controller and those controllers are connected over Ethernet. Wires are routed to the nearest controller where the data is converted into a network packet for transmission to the correct location in the car. To be effective, the network must be reliable, have low latency and low jitter, and these are all attributes that we've been able to achieve with the current design. The design has eliminated most of the cross-car wires in Cybertruck, and with the next-gen platform, we're gonna finish the job and eliminate all of them. This um, consolidated vehicle network allows us also to make a whole lot more dynamic changes on the fly um, to how components in the vehicle talk to each other rather than the traditional approach of separate CAN buses that are spread throughout the vehicle yeah. and, and fixed in hardware. And one of the nice things is that you can see the entire vehicle through a single connection, which wasn't possible in the past for debug. For the next-gen platform, we're looking to optimize the controller design across the entire car and across all of the organizations, not just for a given subsystem. Simplifying the wire harness will enable automation. 48 volts will allow us to reduce the size, mass, and cost of the low voltage system. And it's one of the key things to enabling us to scale uh, production of Is the Is that two screens in Cybertruck there? For the master plan three. David? Maybe. No, it can be. So I joined Tesla in 2012. And even in those very early days of the Model S, we already had the ability to update software over the air in all of the controllers throughout the entire vehicle at a time when other cars were just starting to update software in only their infotainment units. And furthermore, we've had sophisticated, anonymized data logging and telemetry capabilities that allow us to understand how the fleet is doing, what customers are doing with it, and how it's responding in the field to that usage. Remember the miles tracker they used to have on the website? Combined, OTA updates and data insights give us the ability to iterate quickly on our software and to maximize the amount that we learn 
and, and proceed and, and, and the progress that we make in every one of those iterations. We've used these capabilities to inform countless design decisions in both software and hardware. Yeah, one example is that we were able to monitor and track the use of the sunroof in our cars and found that our customers never use their sunroof. So we, we made this easy decision to remove Because it was always broken. Early. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for a while. Mine would leak um, water on my wife's lap. Cold another water. example, Ooh, we were able to use our collision data so we didn't open it. to design <laughs> yeah. our crash safety systems for what happens in the real world, far beyond what regulatory and consumer ratings tests prescribe. And then furthermore, we're able to use that data to recreate in simulation all of those crashes every single time we make a change to the vehicle's design or to the software that controls the airbags and other restraint systems. Here on this graph, the gray dots that show up first are specific crash tests that are prescribed by regulatory and consumer ratings agencies throughout the whole world. And the rest of the color that fills in around and on top of it those represent the crashes that we've seen happen in the real world. Those are what we design for and what we test to. Right. And last year, this data was used to change the algorithm for seatbelt tensioning to reduce injuries in the field, which was OTA to all of our cars. Here are a few statistics that demonstrate how staggeringly quickly we gain new insights from the anonymized data that we've received from the fleet every day. Every day, 123 million miles driven, 1.9 million charge sessions, and those rates are only increasing as we deliver more and more cars into the world. As another example, we've analyzed patterns in the way the fleet drives and charges to optimally size battery packs for our next generations of vehicles. And you'll hear lots of other examples throughout the rest of the day about how we're using data to inform decisions in the product and in manufacturing. So you've heard a lot from Pete, Colin, and others about how important vertical integration is for us in hardware. But it's especially important for us in software. And this is extremely difficult from the way the rest of the traditional automotive supply chain is set up. In most situations, all the controllers in the car are delivered by different tier one suppliers, whose software is written by tier two suppliers, who farm some of that software out to different tier three suppliers, and so on and so on. Making a change that spans multiple components takes months of coordination before any work can even start. And furthermore, integration of software and the server side with what's happening in our vehicles has always been a core part of our DNA and enables us to do things that nobody else can. Most engineers think about the vehicle as a complete, consolidated, fully contained system. But in the software team, we think about the system as including the vehicle as well as all of our back-end server-side applications and infrastructure and the resultant feedback loop from the entire fleet that informs all the decisions we make as an engineering team. For example, we recently released a feature in Model S and X that automatically, predictively, adjusts and raises the suspension for ride comfort before the car hits a section of rough road. We do that by leveraging the fleet to generate a map of road roughness everywhere our cars drive. Sounds pretty simple, but requires coordination of software across a number of different components inside and outside of the car. The restraint control module, whose inertial measurement unit senses the road roughness. The autopilot computer, whose GPS module and localizer figure out where the car is in the world. 
our navigation server, which aggregates the anonymized telemetry from the fleet and annotates our map with things like updated speed limits, lane topology, and now road roughness. The onboard navigation engine, which looks ahead of the route that the car is traveling on and determines whether things are about to get rough. And finally, the air suspension controller Hang on, it's takes about to get all rough. those factors into account and decides con continuously whether it is appropriate to adjust the suspension for ride comfort. And before we released this feature to the world, we sent prototype versions of it to the entire fleet that ran passively in the background, sending us anonymous data Dark mode. every time it would have engaged, which taught us exactly how it was Shadow going to mode. behave in the yeah. wild, in every environment, in every circumstance. Yeah, being able to test new algorithms in the background without an impact in the car is, is really critical ability for us, especially for safety critical things like emer automatic emergency braking. And we've used it to um, iterate on early versions of our stability control algorithms, which were introduced to the entire Model 3 fleet in 2017 with extreme, extremely high confidence, even on a very foundational and safety critical function. Okay, so far you've heard me talk a lot about how we leverage our software systems to iterate quickly on the customer-facing product. But what I haven't talked about and what we haven't said much about publicly in general is how we leverage these capabilities in our own internal operations. So for example, in the early days of manufacturing Model S, we very quickly realized that there are a lot of different ways you could misassemble a car. You could forget to plug in a wire, you could not fully set a connector, you could pull a part from the wrong bin. So when we designed our manufacturing processes for Model 3 and all of our other vehicles going forward, we took a page from the software playbook which says, test early and test often. And we applied that mantra to every single car that we build at every step of the assembly line. So now, when a production associate plugs something into the car, the central car computer sees that connection, confirms that it's the correct part for the type of car that's supposed to be built, installs a software update if necessary, checks configurations and calibrations, and runs a barrage of tests on that thing and all the other things that are connected to it. And if it finds an that's anomaly that can be fixed purely with software, it throws an alert immediately that is displayed prominently on the vehicle's display as well as sent to back-end command and control systems so that a human can come over and fix the problem before the rest of the car gets built on top of it. And we're taking a similar approach. That's really smart. You've got a big computer there. They're using it. Vehicle yeah. diagnostics, natural language processing applied to customer narratives when a customer schedules a service appointment, and a suite of internally developed tools. We are successfully diagnosing, scheduling, and ordering parts for over 33% of customer concerns and service. Yep, and we also use uh, testers built around our own controllers to test sub-assemblies before they get to the car, which will be even more important as we go to Lars's unboxed assembly strategy. 100%. We'll know with extremely high confidence that before those boxes get put together, that they are, that they are assembled, they themselves are assembled correctly. Okay, you've heard at lots of other events about all the awesome things that our autopilot and AI teams are doing to make the car drive itself, bringing us into the future of autonomy. But we've also been thinking for years about all of the other pieces that we are going to need to manage a network of autonomous vehicles. A lot of this has been happening behind the scenes in the form of platform level functionality that we'll leverage later. 
but you've seen some of its surface already in terms of features that our customers and our internal operations teams can benefit from. Like in 2021, we built on top of our mobile app phone key and gave our customers the ability to share their car with anyone by sending them an invitation in a text message or an email. Last year, we introduced profile synchronization, which synchronizes your seat, steering, and mirror positions, as well as your settings, media favorites, and stored navigation locations across all vehicles in your account. Internally, we have an app that allows our personnel in engineering, manufacturing, delivery, and logistics to view, locate, and drive all Tesla-owned vehicles at their site. And when customers bring their car into service, when they receive a Tesla-owned service loaner vehicle, we are starting at some locations to automatically add that vehicle to the customer's mobile app account so that combined with cloud-synchronized profiles and phone key, it's a completely seamless experience. As soon as the customer walks up to that loaner, it behaves and feels exactly like their own car. And all awesome. this is built on top of end-to-end -to -end encryption and cryptographically signed commands so that customer data remains private and obscure, and the fleet only trusts commands from authorized parties. So that's a bit of a preview of all the pieces that we're building, looking ahead to our future of autonomous fleets. Synchronization, permissions management, security, and privacy. And that has been a whirlwind tour through some of the things that we're doing behind the scenes to enable the efficiency, cost reduction, and speed that we are going to need for their next phase of growth and for the next phase of the master plan. And so now, to tell us about the latest in full self-driving, I'd like to introduce Ashok. Thanks, David and Pete. Hey, everyone. My name is Ashok Kaliswamy. I work on autopilot and self-driving at Tesla. I joined Tesla back in 2014, so I've been working on this problem for almost nine years now. Yeah, some of you might be wondering, hey, what has this self-driving got to do with the plan to a sustainable future? But it's actually a critical part of this plan, and here's why. Currently, when the car is not being used, it is sitting idly in parking lots, not doing anything. But when autonomy is truly unlocked, this car, instead of being idle, can go serve other customers. This fundamentally reduces the need to scale manufacturing to extreme levels, because each car is being used way more. But this is no trivial problem. Building a scalable self-driving system is, I think, one of the hardest real-world AI problems out there right now. Nonetheless, we at Tesla have made significant strides in making one of the most general systems uh, at sol solving this problem. There are three main parts to get right to build a scalable problem. First is the architecture, the architecture of the AI system. Second is the data. And third is the compute. We'll start with the architecture. At Tesla, we are betting on AI, machine learning, neural networks to help us build a general vision and planning system. In the early days, we used to have single camera, single frame neural networks that produced some outputs. These were stitched together uh, in some post-processing steps for the planner. But this was very brittle and was not leading to great success. So what we did in the last few years is transition most of our stack 
into this multi-camera video neural networks. These neural networks take in the live feed from the car in real time of the eight cameras in the car and produce a single unified 3D output space. There are many tasks that we produce. It's their motion, lanes, roads, uh, traffic lights, what have you. motion of this truck next to us. And this helps the planning system to avoid a collision with this object. Some of the tasks, such as lane connectivity, are more complicated to model using naive methods in computer vision. So we don't stop at the computer vision techniques, but we reach out to techniques in other areas, such as language modeling, reinforcement learning, uh, to model this task. This is similar. Uh, these, these, these networks use similar techniques, such as transformers, attention modules, autoregressive modeling of uh, tokens, similar to what large language models like ChatGPT do out there. With such an end-to-end -end system of solving perception, we have really removed the brittle post-processing steps and produced high-quality outputs for the planning system. Even the planning system is not stuck in the old ways. Uh, it is now starting to use more and more AI systems to solve this problem. The neural, neural network-based planners are needed especially in complicated urban planning when there's a lot of other objects interacting with us. This is, for example, an intersection where we have to turn left while yielding to crossing objects and to the pedestrians crossing the road. We have to do this both safely and smoothly while respecting everyone's right of way uh, and preferences. If this was done naively, each configuration would take 10 milliseconds of compute, and there are easily, easily thousands of configurations to reason about. This would not be feasible using traditional compute. But using AI, we have packaged all of this into a 50 millisecond compute budget so it can run in real time. The second big piece of this puzzle is the data. This is where Tesla has a unique advantage because it can tap into the feed, uh, in, uh, tap into the fleet to access the exact data that can fix the problems. But raw data is not sufficient. We, in order to train these networks, you need label data. You need labels to supervise the networks. And if you only depended on the human labelers, this data would be too tiny to train these large multi-camera video modules. We need lot, lots and lots of data to train these networks. Hence. We have built a sophisticated auto-labeling pipeline that collects data from the fleet, runs computational algorithms in our data center, and then produces the labels to train these networks. Here, you are seeing a 3D reconstruction that is happening by collecting various clips from different cars in the fleet and assembling them all of them together into a single unified representation of the world around the car. You can see all the lanes, the road boundaries, curb, crosswalks, even the text on the road being accurately reconstructed by these algorithms. We don't have to stop at this kind of reconstruction. Once we have this base reconstruction, we can build various simulations on top of it to produce an infinite variety of data to train for all the corner cases. We have a capable simulator that can synthesize adversarial weather, 
lighting conditions, and even the motion of other objects to test all the corner cases that might even be rare in the real world. Here's an example of why this data is critical and how we can solve problems using data. So back in the days, um, for example, in this case, we had some false braking where we thought this car that's actually parked there was going to move into our path, and hence we were precautiously braking. But it is unnecessary because the car is truly parked. So how can we solve this? What we did was we mined the fleet for similar cases where the car had false braking uh, due to some parked car. We added 14,000 videos to our training set. And then once we uh, train the networks again with this new data, it now correctly understands that, OK, there is no driver in this car, hence it must be parked, so then there is no need to brake. And this is right, a, a camera can see a driver LiDAR is not going to. Side, you can see that every time we add data, the performance... We'll have to add for self-driving cars next, because they won't have a driver. Every kind of task that we have in our system. <laughs> and this is what we call as data engine. We identify challenging cases, such as the one you saw earlier. And there could be other different types of challenging cases, too. We mine the fleet for such data, put it through our auto-labeling system, and produce the labels, add it to the training set. And once we have the newly trained models, we deploy them to the feed, fleet. If we rinse and repeat this process, everything gets better and better. The final critical piece is the compute. In order to train these large models in a reasonable amount of time, you need lots of compute. In addition, compute is also required to produce the labels automatically. This is just compute in our data centers. In addition, we also have high uh, com compute um, computers in the car, which can run up to like 150 terawatts of compute. On the back end, we have a 14,000 GPU cluster. And roughly 30% is used for auto-labeling, and the remaining 70% is used for training. We also have a 30 petabyte of video cache, and this is growing to 200 petabytes. All of this is going to significantly increase when we, once we bring Dojo, which is our training computer, on board into this. Just to give a reference, just the occupancy networks that you saw earlier use 1.4 billion frames to train these networks. We have already shipped our FSD beta software to pretty much everyone that has bought it in United States and Canada. This amounts to roughly 400,000 customers who can turn it on anywhere, and then the car would attempt to drive to the destination. It's still su supervised, uh, but it, it can already handle turns, stop at traffic lights, yield with other objects, and generally get to the destination. We have observed that people who use FSD are already five to six x safer than the US, US national average. Like I mentioned earlier, the solution to scalable FSD is getting the AI architecture, the data, and the compute just right. And we have assembled a world-class team to execute on this. We are pushing the frontier on these, uh, on these three items. And as we improve the safety, the reliability, and the comfort of the system, we can then unlock driverless operations, which then makes the car be used way more than what it's used right now. With that, I'd like to introduce uh, Elon back on stage uh, to give some more updates. Yeah, this is the next latest video. 
the optimist. All right, who said the robot? There it is. Just separate. <laughs> oh no, it's robot murder. <laughs> They've upgraded the hands. Yeah. Robots working on robots. Is he building so a friend? He's us, building a friend! Uh, when we did AI Day, <laughs> uh, this version of Optimus didn't work, work at all. So the rate of improvement here, I think, is, is quite uh, significant. Um, it's obviously not doing parkour. His, his uh, shoe soles are pedal, uh, pedal grips it is from your car. Around, <laughs> uh, copies, I suppose, of Optimus. Um, The thing that I think Tesla brings to the table that others don't have is that we have um, we have the uh, real-world AI. We're, we're the most advanced in real-world AI. So the same AI that drives the car, uh, it, which you can think of the car really as a robot on wheels, and this is a robot on legs. Um, so, as we solve real-world AI, and I don't think there's any—I don't think there's anyone even close to Tesla on solving real-world AI. Um, that same computer and software uh, goes into Optimus. Um, so it's it's not that helpful to have a humanoid robot if you have to program every individual action. Um, it needs to be able to walk around autonomously and solve tasks. Um, you should be able to instruct it in simple things by sh showing visually what, what, what the robot needs to do or just telling it what to do. So, um, so I think that's a key advantage that we have. And then we also uh, are good at designing things for manufacturing and then manufacturing itself. So the, the actuators in Optimus are all custom designed Tesla actuators. So we designed the the electric motor, the gearbox, the power electronics, obviously the battery pack, and everything else that goes into Optimus. Um, we're actually quite, we were quite surprised to find how little was available off the shelf. Because uh, there's a lot of, a vast number of electric motors, um, gearboxes and whatnot, that are available in the world. And we found none of them were useful in a, in a humanoid robot, literally none. So. You have to custom design the actuators um, for a humanoid robot. Um, and so the same team that designed the groundbreaking uh, electric motors that are in the, say, the Model S Plaid designed the actuators in the robot. Um, so, I mean, for, for practical purposes, what this means is that we should be able to bring an actual product to market at scale that is useful um, far faster than any, anyone else. Um, and you know, assuming that the things I'm saying are true, uh, or at least you put it, I think they are true, you can just, it's just a question of the timing. Um, you start getting into interesting questions of like, what's the ratio of humans to humanoid robots? I think it might be greater than one to one. You know, because you could, you could sort of see a use, a home use for robots, certainly industrial uses for robots, uh, humanoid robots. Um, I, think, I think we might exceed a one-to-one -one ratio 
of humanoid robots to humans. Um, it's not even clear what an economy means at that point, you know, since an economy is output per person times persons, but if output is much higher and there's no limit on persons, then what's the actual limit on the economy, you know? We're still pretty far from Kardashev scales here, but uh, we're getting there. So anyway, uh, it's a, probably the least understood or appreciated part of what we're doing at Tesla, but will probably be worth significantly more than the, uh, the car side of things long term. So charging. I think Rebecca's next right. for talking right. about charging. Charge. Hi there, my name is Rebecca Tanucci and I lead our charging infrastructure teams here at Tesla. And at Tesla Charging, we have understood since day one that a great charging experience is the linchpin to electric vehicle adoption. And that understanding has meant that we've always taken a holistic approach to charging. That's a word that you've heard a lot here today, but what it means for charging is that we've considered every use case. We think a lot about what it means to charge at home, even if that home is an apartment or condo. And we spend a lot of time thinking about what does it mean to charge away from home, including if that's for daily commuting or if you're going on a road trip. And this holistic approach has led to some pretty incredible results. In 2022, we provided nine terawatt hours of charging across our various charging methods. Over 50% of that was supplied via convenient AC home charging. And when our customers are away from home, they can visit one of our 80,000 charging points. That includes 40,000 of our beloved superchargers. Now getting here has meant that we've spent 10 years building charging infrastructure when basically no one else in the industry would do it. And while we certainly have a lot of areas that we want to improve, those 10 years have afforded us the opportunity to get pretty good at charging. First, we have the industry's lowest deployment costs. Our costs are often 20%, if not 70% lower than alternatives. And that goes for both our supercharging hardware and deployments and our AC charging product lines. A lot of reasons that we're able to achieve this, you've heard a lot of them here today. We're vertically integrated. We manufacture and engineer all of our own charging equipment. We share components across our different product lines. And on the supercharger side, we also uh, install and operate all of our own sites. And that's led us to be pretty obsessed with finding new ways to innovate around installation. As an example, we have recently extended our excellence in manufacturing to how we build supercharger sites. We are pre-building four post supercharger units at our, factory in Giga, uh, at our factory in New York. We load them on a truck, we truck them to site, and then we crane them into position. This method saves us 15% on our deployment costs and we can install a site in a matter of days. Once we install a site, we also operate it really efficiently. Over the last few years, we've been able to cut our per kilowatt hour cost by 40%. Again, a lot of reasons for this, but one at the top of the list is we've focused on increasing our site utilization. Site utilization is just how many sessions or kilowatt hours can we push through a site or a post. And basically doing that allows us to spread our cost over more sessions, thus lower cost per kilowatt hour. 
But of course, that's easier said than done because when we push up site efficiency, of course, the risk is that we, we have a poor customer experience and we have wait time at our sites. This is where Trip Planner comes in. Trip Planner is our in-vehicle routing or navigation system. Other electric vehicle manufacturers, well, some of them have vehicle side data. Other infrastructure providers have site data, but at Tesla, we have both. And what that allows us to do is to use Trip Planner to route vehicles towards available sites and away from congested sites so we can balance our utilization without risking wait time. And the results speak for themselves. Over the last few years, we've been able to drive up site utilization by 30%. That means lower per kilowatt hour cost, while also cutting our wait time in half. And we think this can get even better. Today, we're feeding Trip Planner with real-time site information and information about vehicles currently at sites. Going forward, we'll be moving that to projecting site occupancy based on the understanding of what vehicles are currently routing to those sites. And ultimately, our vision for Trip Planner is that it's the air traffic controller for electric vehicle charging across all infrastructure on a global basis. And the last thing we focused on to get here is quicker charge times. We're really proud of what we've been able to accomplish here. We've shaved off 30% of our charge time, average supercharging uh, site time, visit time over the last few years. This has taken improvements on the hardware side, with our software, on our vehicles, and on our infrastructure, and we're really excited to continue pushing this trend down. Looking forward, the job does not get any easier. As you heard earlier, we aspire to a fully electrified global fleet. That fleet, uh, from an industry standpoint, needs nine petawatt hours of charging on an annual basis. And while Tesla charging certainly doesn't have to supply all of that, it does require that, for our part, we have a few new focuses in order to scale. First, if you want a fully electrified global fleet, all of those vehicles have to have a great and reliable charging experience. So, as many of you know, recently for we started opening, opening up our networks on a global basis. Over 50% of our superchargers in Europe are currently open to other electric vehicles. We've also opened up in Asia Pacific with our first sites in Australia. And just yesterday, we opened our first 10 supercharger sites here in North America in the U.S. to other electric vehicles. You can check Magic Doc off your bingo card. To be able to make this a really <laughs> easy experience for our new customers, all you have to do is sign into our Tesla app to unlock a post and start charging. We've also, uh, on physical site changes, we've also added hardware to our sites. They're called Magic Docs. And basically, that uh, is installed in areas where we have different charging standards, and they allow for other electric vehicles to come to our site without having to bring their own adapters there and is. hardware. North America. We've also just started installing our fourth generation supercharger posts. Those are being installed in Europe first. And oh. while it's not a, a big mention, not a big thing to mention, they do have longer charging cables so that we can more easily reach the charge ports of different vehicles. Gen 4 post or Gen 4 charging? The second thing we need to make sure we do when we talk about scaling all of this charging infrastructure is we need to make sure that it's powered from renewable sources. We're very proud that over the last two years we've procured enough renewable energy 
to offset the amount of charging we've provided to customers. But as we look forward and we talk about this fully electrified fleet on a global basis, we really want to make sure that the demand for charging more closely follows when renewable sources are available. Now, this chart is on an aggregate basis for the US, and it, it varies based on what your renewable generation sources are locally. But basically, uh, what this shows is we want to kind of move that charging curve. And for solar and wind in this example, it means more daytime charging. And we think the best way to go towards daytime charging is to install, into, install AC charging that is convenient and low cost everywhere vehicles are typically parked throughout the day. So that's really the plan. While supercharging and home charging definitely stay a big part of the puzzle, our teams are currently scaling to install AC charging everywhere vehicles charge during the day so that we can power them from renewable sources. So summing it up, while we've spent 10 years installing infrastructure that is low cost, it's efficient, and it, and it provides a great customer experience, we're really just getting started when we talk about supporting master plan part three. We've got a scale capacity on an industry-wide basis to nine petawatt hours on an annual basis. Uh, we've got to open up to non-Teslas and make the charging experience for everybody really great. And we've got to power all of this via renewable sources. And one more thing, yes, we've got to scale uh, we've got to scale our infrastructure, and yes, we want to power it via renewable sources, but we're Tesla, so we also want to make sure that we're continuing to focus on providing really incredible charging experiences. With that, I want to welcome up our leaders of supply chain, Roshan and Karn, to talk a little bit about that topic. Thanks, Rebecca. Uh, hi, my name is Karn, and my team leads uh, supply chain for uh, electronics, powertrain, and battery at Tesla. And we've also got responsibility for indirect purchasing, construction procurement, and warehousing and distribution. Hi, my name is Roshan. I've been with Tesla for over 14 years. My team manages vehicle commodities, solar, logistics, planning, and capital equipment. 10 years, forgot that. <laughs> Um, so today we wanted to provide you a quick overview of Tesla supply chain and what really separates us from the typical uh, automotive supply chain. As you've seen in presentations prior from Pete and Drew and some others, Tesla designs a lot of the subcomponents that go into our vehicles. So we're not buying things that are off the shelf from suppliers. So supply chain is not purely a commercial relationship as it is in most other companies. We actually have an arm within supply chain called supplier industrialization engineering and the burden of taking a, a drawing, a design from concept and turning it into thousands of products produced at the right cost and at the right yield falls with this group. Of course, they work very closely with design engineering, but really the level of detail that our engineers get involved in terms of building the capability of the suppliers is, is, is pretty detailed. So, you know, once we get a new part, uh, naturally with electric vehicles, a lot of the supply chain doesn't exist. The, our, our engineers would basically take the drawing, turn it into the manufacturing concept, do the equipment selection, and physically go to the supplier and stay there for weeks or months, however long it takes, to basically do the line bring up. Once the line is brought up and we're hitting the, the right rate, the right quality, at the right yield, then we work on things like automation and, and yield improvement and, and those types of activities. 
So th there's, there's a big group of mechanical, electrical, industrial, you name it, engineers within supply chain, and it's their responsibility to, to take care of this. Now, this is a huge strategic advantage because we manage every detail of our supply chain, because we're so integrated with our partners that we know about issues before they happen. It's almost live. We've got dashboards, we've got connections, and across the 10,000 you know, 10, or so factories across the world that are ma manage making our components, we have a pretty good view of the health of those suppliers, and this has been a key asset in, in how we've been able to kind of manage things uh, uh, through a lot of uh, different um, issues over the past couple of years. So, um, you know, supply chain is a, a game of perfection. Perfection is a passing grade. It's like a, it, you know, if one part doesn't show up, that line goes down, and our CEO finds out about it in less than 20 minutes. Tesla is very different than Apple. They outsource manufacturing. We do it in-house. So supply chain is kind of right in the middle. Uh, and, and perfection is, is increasingly elusive and very expensive uh, if you uh, kind of look at uh, all the, 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 the issues we've had to encounter over the past year. And, and today, we're just going to talk about how we got through the past, and then what are we going to do going forward, and how are we going to get there. So let me draw your attention to this slide. Uh, on the left, you'll see uh, a portfolio, our existing portfolio of products. Right at, at the top, you've got the SNX platform. In the middle, you've got 3NY. I think everyone's more than familiar with, with uh, those. And then the, the Tesla Energy platform, which is a very high uh, rate of growth for us. And you and see- Don't forget the solar and supercharger. And solar well. and supercharger. Thank you, Roshan. And You'll see a reduction uh, in, so and, and then we basically got the tier one and tier two parts. This might be boring, but a tier one supplier is any supplier that builds and supplies parts directly for consumption in our five factories. And our tier two supplier basically does the same thing for a tier one supplier. So they are the supplier to our supplier. And depending on the supply chain of uh, any one of these products, this can actually go down to the tier six levels. So for example, if you're talking about the battery cell, we really get involved with the mines of like where we're procuring the lithium, the cobalt, and all that sort of stuff because we're procuring such high volumes of it. So you'll see a reduction in the number of parts on the SNX platform uh, to the 3NY platform. And, and this is because of the great work our design engineers have done of making the car simpler and easier to manufacture. In parallel, we actually had a similar strategy in supply chain. We had cast a wide net to a lot of suppliers for the SNX platform. There was a lot of suppliers that we invited to partner with us. And we used that platform as sort of a filter to see which suppliers have the technical, financial, and cultural capabilities to match us, right? Who, who, like, who do we invite to the party when we really scale things up? And we, you know, we, we really dramatically reduced the number of suppliers that we were dealing with for the 3NY platform. And this is an approach we'll continue to do for future platforms as they come along that are even more high volume. So th this, this has really been our approach. Uh, it's made things uh, a lot easier. And it, it, you know, we, we, could we could figure out the suppliers that were capable of, of moving at our pace and, and then the ones that didn't have the desire to or the capability to. You need both desire and capability. Um, secondly, the complexity on the tier two level is, is very high, right? These are the suppliers to our suppliers, and there are a lot of components. So think about silicon, think about resistors, capacitors, diodes, uh, all the little assemblies. All the raw materials. Raw materials, all the, that's even further down. Yeah. But all these little sub-assemblies that have to come into Tesla, 
the, the complexity is immense. So even though at the tier one level we're talking about 8,000 parts total, it seems like a lot, but it's not a lot. The management of the tier two is really where we excel. And I'd like to illustrate that with an example. Meet the car computer. Very innocent sounding name, and it's anything but. This is an absolute monster to manage. So I think you've all seen the picture on the left of the autopilot board. That's the top of the autopilot board. The autopilot board also has a bottom, and the bottom is populated heavily with components. On the other side of the heat sink, you've got the MCU, the multimedia cluster board. This board is equally complex. It's also double-sided, eight-layered. And these boards, these computers run so hot at peak operation that they have to be liquid-cooled liquid through a heat sink. So this assembly requires taking those two boards and then bonding them to a heat sink that's uh, hermetically sealed as an assembly, of course, flashing the software and all that sort of stuff. And then that's one part number that comes to Tesla. So this is an example of one tier one part number that's a very complex assembly to manage at the tier two level. And there's more than 7,000 components here. There's a, you know, as we stand here, a component's being assembled onto a car computer every 1.4 milliseconds. The line that builds this computer is the length of a football field. So it's, it's quite complicated. And initially, when we first started building this board, due to the complexity of it, we had to rely heavily on labor. But once we dialed in the quality, the rates, and the yield, we started focusing on making this more efficient. The only way to control cost is by removing labor. The first step is removing labor. The second step is fully automating. The third step is turning off the lights and letting the factory run, ideally. And that's going to be the goal for us here. So 95%, but our work is not done. We're going to be going a lot further than this. So this illustrates the point that a part is not a part. A part has a lot of complexity underneath it. Supply chain is, is a game of multiple tiers. And, and what's made us successful is our involvement in all the details with our supply engineers uh, that are Tesla employees. They're Tesla supply engineers. So they're like on our payroll that go and ramp up these capabilities that are suppliers. And then just managing each and every attribute of it. You know, 7,000 a day through the chip shortage, through the pandemic, through all the other stuff that we had to deal with, was, was very difficult to manage. But because we had all the details, we were able to pull this off. Um, of course, supply chain is not just about parts. It's also about logistics and a lot of other things. So I'll hand it off to Roshan for sharing some stats. Yeah, so talking about inbound complexity, just over the course of just last year, we moved about 16 million pallets uh, from our suppliers to our factories. Just to visualize that, if you put those pallets side by side, uh, it could cover the uh, half the circumference of the earth. Uh, and talking about, again, the tier two complexity, over one billion electronic components get moved every week to support the production that current and team manages. This is right now, one billion components a week, right. 52 billion a year. This is gonna go up, by the way. And, and on top of that, we also have the responsibility to make sure the right component is supplied to the right service location to support the growing fleet of our vehicles. And we have about 685 uh, service centers that these components need to show up just in time. Um, and then we've also been, uh, as, 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 uh, as a result of pandemic and even before that, we're working, uh, working on dual sourcing and triple sourcing some of our critical components. As a result of it, we have suppliers around 45 countries in the world. 
Yeah, our approach really has been to <clears throat> bring the manufacturing of subcomponents closer to the point of consumption. It makes the supply chain more green because you're not burning diesel, moving stuff around. And it also gives us the security of supply of having multiple sources in case one factory gets taken offline. And that's how we got through pandemic also. Yep. So last three years were incredibly hard. Karn and I used to look a lot longer <laughs> pre-COVID. But on a serious note, pandemic really changed the game of supply chain management. We were just not being a regular supply chain person. We were rolling up our sleeves and negotiating with state governments, city managers, mayors to help kickstart our uh, suppliers to restart their operations. You know, there are some really inspiring stories where our supply chain team really fought hard to make sure that the factories don't, don't go down. And, and uh, it's also a testament to the resilience of our supplier partners. Having said that, you know, it was not all about resilience and never give up attitude. We had also laid the foundation of having dual sources and also, um, you know, in many instances, we had uh, many, uh, you know, uh, th things that that the that uh, we had simplified the, the parts that we had simplified the supply chain design that we had simplified, due to which we were able to get through the pandemic in much better shape than rest of the automotive. Uh, it forced us to adapt. You know, right. we, we encountered issues one at a time. It was really a team effort. We heavily relied on the government relations team. You literally had to, the COVID pandemic, as, as you're aware, you know, happened in different countries at different times. But unfortunately, you need all the parts to make the car. So at any given point, there was one factory that was lying down. There was right. one jurisdiction that was being you know, that didn't want to, they wanted to shut down a factory because they had a, you had an outbreak. So learning the rules, understanding, coming up with argument points, leveraging the team, and getting those, we, it, was a, it was a difficult but good experience. Exactly. We learned a lot. Yeah, and as we were just figuring out to work with COVID, then the port congestion hit in, on the West Coast. Uh, logistics lead time went up by, you know, twice the, twice the amount, and we were operating with less than 35% accuracy in the system. That means at any given point, the ETAs of the vessels were 75% off. So we figured out how to work with that, and then the chip shortage hits. Yeah, the chip shortage. That was a nightmare. Uh, but we got through it. I mean, you know, I think uh, it's a testament to the tenacity of the team and the resilience of our supplier partners. Uh, it's mostly behind us, and I think the results speak for themselves. Uh, Tesla was able to grow production volumes uh, at a time where the rest of the industry had a hard time staying flat. I think they shrunk, actually, uh, cumulatively. Uh, and, you know, we were often asked the question, how do we manage through it? And, and the answer is very much kind of baked through the presentations today. First, we design our own electronics. So in order to control cost, we really had to go and build relationships with all the tier two suppliers uh, to negotiate them directly. So these relationships were formed, you know, over 10 years ago, and, and we've really gotten to know them well. So when a shortage hit, we knew you know, who to escalate to, who to call, who to ask for help, and, and uh, really kind of swarming the issue at, at the point of constraint. So the best team, you know, strong relationships with vendors, and then uh, we also have a pretty sophisticated capacity planning function. Uh, tier two capacity needs to come on earlier than tier one capacity. Tier three capacity has to be even earlier. And our team does a very good job of having that strategic alignment with all our partners to make sure that the capacity is ready before we need it. 
We're a mission-based company. Our goal is to put as many EVs out there. We did not let the pandemic phase us. We were full throttle. And it was pedal to the metal in terms of our demand signal. That also helped. Uh, the, the silicon industry has very long lead times. They invest billions of dollars in uh, sophisticated fabs that take years to build. Uh, so that stability and demand is something they appreciated, and it's something that is very, uh, very much a Tesla thing. Full um, lightning so pedal, come on. This was <laughs> looking back, right? This is how we got here. This is how we got from zero to 40,000 cars a week. Let's talk about how we get to 20 million. So the question gets asked, you know, is Tesla going to basically break the chip industry if we grow to 20 million vehicles? The answer is no. But let me walk you through a logic on that. So as it stands right now, a uh, Tesla enabled with a full self-driving computer has four times the silicon content of a regular vehicle. Uh, so at about the 2 million run rate, we're consuming about 700,000 12-inch wafer equivalents. That's the industry term that's thrown around for capacity in silicon. Uh, that's how much we're using, so a little bit below a million. And the global wafer capacity, based on the estimates we've seen, is about 135 million. So we're about half a percent off the industry. Not a lot. Now, if you get to 20 million, when we get to 20 million, and if we don't make any simplifications in terms of part count, which is also a separate work stream, I think Colin talked about it, Pete talked about it, we're not going to have all these different components. We're really going to simplify the architecture because simpler is better. But even if we don't do that, and we take the most pessimistic case, we're going to need 8 million wafers, okay? And the industry is going to scale to 20 to 200 million by that point. So still, we're less than 5% of the market share. And if we run the same offense we ran all along and continue to work with our partners and, and you know, invest in fabs and invest in capacity, uh, we'll have the capacity ready by the time we need it. So I really don't see this as an impediment uh, from a supply chain perspective to get to 20 million. Now, I would like to talk about a page that we took out of the electronic playbook and applied it to the mechanical side. Our vehicles use currently the heat pump-based technology for the thermal system. But before heat pump, our vehicles used to have a dispersed thermal system connected by hoses. Engineering was inspired from circuit boards and then created a system which was extremely integrated where 60% of the system was the size of a basketball size, basketball, where it contained about 100 components, 50 uh, ceiling interfaces, and several, several different manufacturing processes all were t packaged into this tight, tight size. Now, why are we talking about this? Well, we launched the system right during the outbreak of the pandemic in Model Y. The team was forced to manage 100 plus components from different suppliers around the world remotely. So, there are four videos playing at the same time. One is the video of the manual line that was created uh, when we started the production. And this manual line produced a lot of quality issues, let alone throughput. So we quickly uh, you know, pivoted to a semi-automated line. But in spite of that, although the throughput was uh, great, uh, the quality issues sustained. So our team decided that fully automated is the only way to go. So before we automate the line, we created a 3D simulation. Now, not many companies or teams have this capability, where at this point, now when a part gets specced, we have the ability 
to create a 3D simulation of all the complex sub-assemblies sub that would be involved in making the part and tell the suppliers exactly what equipment to purchase, what to test, and, 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 and create an end-to-end -end line in simulation. And that's what we did here. So with the help of the simulation, uh, we had a very detailed uh, sub-assembly cell, which was juxtaposed with the, with the supplier's factory layout. And then we, uh, after a back and forth of, of iteration and optimizing the processes, we implemented this fully automated line in less than eight months. And the results were remarkable. 99% reduction in labor force. So in a line that would need 1,000 associates to build the super manifold in full volume now just takes 10, 10 associates. And the quality also went up by an order of magnitude. Uh, we have a defect rate of less than 0.05%, and a super manifold rolls out every seven seconds because we have created many automated lines. And these factories are the size of two football fields, by the way. Roshan had to one-up me on that one. 99% <laughs> two football fields. Uh, so why are we talking about this? In a world where labor costs are increasing, labor participation is decreasing, there's a huge turnover, and the cost of implementing automation is going down by 3x in the next 10 years. This is how we are thinking about complex assemblies, and we are going to push this type of thinking into our supply base more and more who will be building our complex assemblies. This is the only way we think we can confidently scale to the 20 million vehicles target. To summarize, we have laid the foundation in getting ready to execute Master Plan 3. Our strategy is supply chain design simplification. We are going to make sure that we have more control into the tiers of the supply chain. We are going to grow responsibly and sustainably with our long-term partners, and we'll automate. Yeah, so you know, going from zero to forty thousand cars a week was was tough. I mean, it took it took a lot of trial and error. It took a lot of learning. There was a lot of pain. There's a lot of mental scar tissue, as Elon calls it, uh, through that process. But now, now that we're at that level and the foundation is set, going from forty to four hundred is not gonna. It doesn't really phase us. Uh, we have a capable team. We've got capable external partners that have you know gone through hell with us. Our leadership team is galvanized behind the mission, um, and we're gonna get it done. So. I'd like to thank you for your time and hand it off to Drew and Tom for the next presentation. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Tom Drew. Uh, I'm now responsible for global production at Sales and Delivery Service. I joined the company back in 2014, um, and um, I've been running the company's business in Greater China and APAC. Um, today, I'm representing all the gigafactories and talk about how we can make more cars and faster. So right now, um, we have four uh, vehicle factories on three continents that serve our markets. Um, the total number of manufacturing employees is over 65,000. This is also including our amazing team in Reno. Uh, they are making powertrains, um, battery packs, and drive unit for our vehicle factories. 
Um, the total installed capacity in all these vehicle factories, about 2 million cars a year. That said, we're always looking for opportunity to grow more capacity from the existing footprint. So you expect this number will grow over time. Um, to build more factories um, is the start to build more cars, and we're certainly the expert of it. Um, this is a before and after image um, showing you the progress we made back in 2019 when we built a gig factory in, in Shanghai. Um, so in nine and a half months' time, um, we uh, built um, a greenfield project uh, to establish the vehicle factory. And the three months later, we started to deliver our first That's customer baby vehicle. People always ask me, you know, how Tesla can build a factory that fast. Or a really, late baby human. Um, we learned from um, our Fremont factory a lot. We talked to the survivor from the production hell and um, tried to avoid all the mistakes we made. Um, and um, we decided to design a straight line with the minimum number of up and downs and turns for easier manufacturability and easier construction. We also challenged all the assumptions that people ever know to build a vehicle factory when um, we delete and simplified um, all the redundancies and the buffers. Um, that's helped us to save a lot of time. Um, also, we have a, a very strong in-house uh, construction team uh, in Tesla. Um, if there um, ever a job cannot be done by others better, and we bring this in-house. So we have this in-house construction team um, have a full control over all the activities on sites from um, design engineering to construction, uh, site management. Um, so this team not, uh, didn't just build Giga Shanghai. They also built uh, Giga Berlin, Giga Texas, and uh, Giga Nevada. Um, and um, they're really the hero behind the scenes. Um, like um, Lars shared earlier, um, going forward with the new uh, platform, uh, the more modular design and densif densified um, gigafactory will be able to um, make more cars from even uh, reduce the footprint. That also means we can build more factories at the same time. Um, with the joint effort of all um, manufacturing teams around the globe, I'm happy to share, early this morning, we hit the 4 million mark for total Tesla ever built. <laughs> and the... Uh, the 4 million vehicle actually built in this factory. Um, when you took a tour on our shop floor, you probably walked past it. <laughs> All right. So it took us 12 years to build the first million vehicle, um, and um, about um, 18 months um, to the uh, build the second million. The third million took us 11 months, and just shortly uh, less than seven months, we built the 4 million cars. So we're getting better at it faster. Exponential growth. Really kudos to the team. So um, what it takes to ramp a gigafactory? Well, if you have 600 robots, 10,000 trained employees, or 5,000 human and 5,000 um, optimists, and hundreds of processes, you can do it. Sounds simple, but it's extremely hard. So there's two um, key metrics that we predominantly focus on. It is an um, overall equipment effectiveness and the cycle time. Um, in Tesla, um, we're setting the passing grade for our vehicle factories um, with 90% OEE and 45-second cycle time. What that means, um, the OEE really evaluates um, the equipment uptime, the um, machine performance, and the quality. Simply put, um, this is the um, actual um, production time on a good quality product versus the planned productive time. Uh, the higher, the better. 45-second um, cycle time, 
That means you, know, you expect every 45 seconds there's a car running off the final assembly line uh, in the factory. Um, and the faster we rent, um, the faster we can get the economy of scale. Um, if you look at um, the chart on the, right, uh, on the left, um, Shanghai um, be able to significantly drop our labor hours per car um, during the ramp. Um, the little dip there has happened in the last um, Q2 2022 um, because of the, the COVID shutdown. Um, and on the right is the Fremont um, Model Y shop. Even this is a 60-year-old facility, the team there still be able to optimize the material flow, eliminate all the um, single point of failure, and drive higher outputs, um, hence um, reduce the labor hours. Um, and actually, this factory keeps setting a new record. Um, yesterday, they just had a new factory daily record. Congrats, Fremont team. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, how can we um, reduce the cycle time, um, keep improving efficiency? We follow the philosophy um, Elon shared about the building rockets, which is questioning, basically find the right problem to solve, and we start with delete, simplify, then we try to accelerate, pressurize the line, and find the, um, if the, the solution actually work, and at last, we think about the automation. Um, I, there's one example in um, Gigafactory Shanghai um, in the paint shop. We find that there is an um, um, overlap um, baking range between a, the um, PVC sealer um, and the top coat. Uh, it was done by two different ovens, and we decided to combine the two processes. Um, eventually, that helped us, um, didn't just help us to reduce the cycle time, but also save the 9% of energy consumption and 9% of the um, CO2 emission. Um, also, we um, commonized the SNX design um, in Fremont. Um, right now, we have a common uh, body and common headlamp. Um, we eliminate, uh, eliminated about 40 parts and reduced about 10% of the cycle time. So um, all these improvements um, really help us um, to uh, um, get to um, a faster ramp um, trajectory. And we didn't just learn from these high volume existing factories, we also learned from the new factories. Um, re most recently, um, our Giga Berlin uh, factory team um, implemented a 5G private network on the shop floor, helped us to um, um, uh, overcome about 90% of the overcycle um, issues for a particular um, process um, in, in GA shop. We're going to soon implement this globally. Um, so, um, Right now, we have an integrated um, global organization from, um, from production all the way um, to sales and delivery service. Uh, this will help us to strengthen feedback loop um, between manufacturing and the service. We obviously uh, want to bring a delight for customer uh, ownership experience um, to our um, uh, car owners. Um, and um, um, with this direct feedback loop, we um, be able to turn customer escalations and the feedback into a quick actions improvement on the shop floor immediately. Um, with that effort, in the past six months, we'll be able to reduce the time in service um, and um, early ownership service, um, also service appointment wait time significantly. So, um, four factories, not enough. If we want to um, hit the 20 million car um, a year target, uh, we're going to keep building new factories, um, new lines, um, and that will come up, uh, come up with a new product as well. Um, and with um, all gigafactories now um, in one organization, we'll be able to replicate um, unified ideas across factories. Um, also, we will help um, the new factories um, that rent faster um, and also 
um, produce a better quality at a lower cost. Um, now I'm going to hand over to Drew and talk about cell manufacturing. <clears throat> Thanks, Tom. Yeah, we're not just talking about new vehicle factories, but also new cell factories. Um, and, and we're going to talk about how we follow the same model when we do, do so. But first, I thought I'd just provide a little bit of an update on cell production. So remember Battery Day? We showed this video with the spoon uh, and how we went from dry powder to film. Let's just say there's no spoon now. So uh, many of you in this room saw uh, this on your tour today. But you know, here is our dry electrode machine here in Texas, one of the lines we have installed here. Fully automated, no spoon, from powder and foil in to coated electrode out. Um, uh, from, from a peak productivity perspective, per tool perspective, this is over 20 times the productivity of the tools that we showed folks on the tour uh, in Cato back in battery day. So we've made a lot of progress on the, the key, one of the key parts of the cell manufacturing process. Um, and we've also continued to focus on uh, refining the way we make cells and the factories that the cells go inside. Um, we, as you can see on this chart, from typical 2170 cylindrical cells to 4680, we made a huge leap, which is basically a 5x reduction in the factory footprint um, and volume, in, volume and footprint. Um, and then from going from what we did in Fremont and our pilot line to Texas, we improved further and we're improving again when we go into Nevada. And what this actually represents is uh, a series of actions taken by a very integrated, holistic uh, design team across you know, the product design, the manufacturing design, the process design, the equipment design, and the facility design. They all need to work together to make this happen. Um, and you can see on the bottom, just as an example of simplicity uh, up, investment down, and scaling up, you know, parts, we've reduced the number of parts in the cell, uh, the number of processes, significant reduction in the number of processes. Um, and, and collaborating with those five design groups, we've been able to uh, uh, result, you know, build a, end up in a, with a factory that's 10 times smaller volumetrically, which means it's uh, faster to get uh, built. It's much lower capex per gigawatt hour output. Um, and we can go and scale you know, to our objectives of you know, 240 total terawatt hours, one terawatt hour a year of stationary storage and 20 million vehicles a year uh, w w with the scalability that is required to, to achieve our goals. Um, and we're not just looking at the cell factory itself, but also upstream materials where necessary. Uh, what you see uh, here is a, the rendering of the 50 gigawatt hour a year <coughs> Corpus Christi lithium refinery that we've already broken ground on here in Texas. Uh, the, the facility will start commissioning by the end of 2023 uh, this year. Um, this is a good example of, of something where we're, we're, we're basically talking about breaking ground and, and, and starting commissioning within 10 months uh, and with, with, with actual production within 12 months. That's the target, similar to what we did in Shanghai. Uh, again, are the result of collaboration and, and you know, internal execution of construction um, in partnership with local communities. Uh, 30, this, this site is 30 minutes from the Corpus Christi ports, located directly on rail. Uh, the process route we're taking is a direct soda ash leach of the input material, which means there's uh, no acid roasting. Uh, we don't have any of the sort of waste products associated with uh, uh, an acid roasting step. Um, we're designed to consume uh, lithium spodumene, which is a very commonly traded lithium rock, um, but it is flexible to other feeds from primary and secondary sources. Um, and similarly, we're working on our cathode facility here in Texas. Maybe you've seen it as you're driving around, which is a 60 gigawatt hour a uh, year uh, cathode facility behind uh, the main building here. 10-month build time there as well. 
Uh, the, the equipment's being installed for the first line as we speak and we'll be commissioning starting next quarter. So we, we, we are doing this where we need to. Uh, our plan is not to do it always. There are lots of competent companies out there. Um, but we are also trying to sort of accelerate the pace of the industry by trying some new things that are a little bit more scalable um, and, and de-risking certain innovations that improve productivity per, uh, in terms of capex per gigawatt hour and things like that. Um, and with that, I think that sums up our efforts on the factory side. Um, uh, Mike, you want to come up and we'll talk about energy? All right, take it away. All right. Here. Hello, everyone. My name is Mike Snyder. I lead our Megapack organization. I've been with Tesla for almost nine years. I'm excited to talk to you today about the Megapack product and the business and some of the exciting things we have ahead of us. From the beginning with this business, we have always focused on building successful projects for our customers and not just the batteries in the box. We've built a hardware and a software platform that is able to adapt to environments all over the world and that is able to scale for, from small island projects to large gigawatt hour scale batteries. We've invested our time and our talent to best understand every aspect, every step in the process and, and every risk of a project to ultimately provide a solution that is, that is thoughtful, intuitive, provides great value to our customers, and is as plug-and-play as possible. And yeah, just looking at these projects, it's incredible to see them all come together in one, in, in one montage. We're seeing the future. Yeah, yeah. We, Impressed. It's t 10 years of building <laughs> these projects, and, and it's, it's incredible to see the impact and to, to see what we have in front of us. Absolutely. We're on our sixth generation of our industrial product, which is the Megapack XL that we're building out of, the, out of Lathrop, California. We've deployed over 16 gigawatt hours of industrial and residential products across 50 countries. And really, Megapack is a market leader. It's best in class in efficiency, reliability, energy density, and easiest to install, lowest cost to install. And we call it XL because it is actually the like, largest, heaviest object that you can transfer around the roads of the world without you know, having to shut them down and get crazy permits and things like this. So. <laughs> It is extra large, and <laughs> there is not going to be an XXL. Let's just say it that way. <laughs> There's been incredible demand for the project or for the product. Uh, 2023 is going to be a great year. We have gigawatt-hour scale projects being built. Um, the Lathrop factory continues to, to scale and ramp up, and there's new products on the near-term roadmap. So a lot to look forward to. How did we get here? Number one, a maniacal focus on all aspects of delivering stationary storage. What do we mean by that? What are some examples? As you see here, the Megapack enclosure, for one example, we designed the wireways directly into the base of the enclosure. So typically, you need to install a bunch of conduits and cables under the ground. Now you can lift them up and install them directly into the base, lower, uh, increasing the speed of deployment and lowering the cost. Next, we see the batteries and the power electronics. And the power electronics is really the, the beauty and the elegance of the Megapack. So this is wh what converts the DC power to AC power on the grid. The brain is built directly into the product. It is able to connect to any grid in the world right out of the box. It allows it to all the Megapacks on a given site to work as one unit. And really, it's, it's, it's what makes it what it is. I think it's the most incredible feature of, of, of the Megapack. As you build out the full site, 
what we end up with is the most energy-dense solution on the market, upwards of 300 megawatt hours per acre. And just as a frame of reference, this solution is two times more power dense than a typical gas peaker plant. So th this is the future. This, this, this is where we're going. This is the product that retires the fossil fuels. Yep. One power plant at a time. We talk about power electronics a little bit more. Um, Tesla is a leader in power electronics. We've deployed over 1.4 terawatts across energy storage and vehicle. And we deliver more power electronics than the solar and the wind industry combined on a per annum basis. And power electronics, it's, it's hard to, under, to overstate how impactful they are. They are really the glue in the sustainable energy economy between generation, storage, and the end use. You know, the, 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 those power electronics devices are switching you know, thousands of times per second, hundreds of thousands of times per second to efficiently react to whatever is needed uh, either in the car or in the grid. Um, and because they are so like sort of software driven at their core, they can provide functionality that uh, hasn't been available to the grid in the past. And it's one of the reasons why renewables and storage together are, are such a great solution. Yeah. And one reason that we focus on power electronics and, and control so much is because of the impact that it has on the projects directly. So just as an example here on the left, we have a, we had a, have a firmware feature that we, we call virtual machine mode. And what virtual machine mode, mode is, is it contributes to grid stability like a car's shock absorber that dampens oscillations or vibrations and keeps the ride smooth. So you can imagine if, if, you, can't, if you don't dampen those, those vibrations, the vehicle could lose control or, or, or um, someone could get hurt. On the grid, you could have a blackout. We have one grid operator that's utilizing virtual machine mode and said they will not operate their grid at 100% renewables unless they have this feature, unless they have virtual machine mode working. Yeah, and but they and tried and it didn't work very well. And virtually, why is it virtual machine mode? It's like synthetic inertia, where you turn the battery power plant into, like, through software, behaving like it's a giant spinning machine, literally, and 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 it, and, and that like inertia stabilizes the grid. Right. Um, and you don't, but you don't need a giant spinning machine. You don't need like a huge fossil fuel power plant or a giant hydro turbine. You can just have the battery do it, um, and you can program it to whatever you need at that part of the grid, or even have it be dynamically changing as the as the grid conditions change. Right. And that's why we focus so much on it. We believe it's the future of how batteries are going to add value. It's going to be more about adding power stability just as it is about energy. Yep. yep. AutoBidder is a, another software feature I wanted to mention. AutoBidder is an autonomous energy trading platform that in its most basic sense is buying energy low and selling it high, and the, the owner can net the difference of that. But operating battery storage is actually very complex. Um, upwards, needing upwards of hundreds or even thousands of decisions every five minutes. It's much more complex than uh, a PV, a solar plant, or a wind plant, or a thermal, uh, thermal battery, uh, or a thermal um, generation plant. And, and it's mostly because of the versatility and the ability of the battery to provide so much value in different ways that these decisions need to be made in real time in order to optimize and, and get the most value out of the batteries it can. So there wasn't a solution that existed in the market, so we built one ourselves. Cool. In the market that we've been markets we've deployed them in, in Australia, in Texas, in the UK, it has proven to be a market leader. We're continuing to invest in AutoBidder as we expand to new markets. Second point of how we got here, a relentless focus on speed of execution. And, and there's two points to be made here. First one is in building factories. What you're seeing here is a time lapse of the mega factory that was built in Lathrop. We took it from a JCPenney distribution center to a world-class manufacturing facility in less than 12 months, which is, which is incredible. 
And really, the, the way that we did this is similar to what my colleagues have described. It's, it's leveraging the vertical integration of Tesla. It's, it's getting the vehicle manufacturing team in the same room as construction and engineering and making decisions quickly with all the, decision, with all the stakeholders and decision makers. We're using the lessons learned from Lathrop as we speak, as we plan for our next factories. Second, it's about installing projects faster. I've mentioned this already, but plug and play is kind of at the core of what we're going for. Over the past four years, we've, we've increased the installation speed by 4x, and we've reduced the total labor involved across both construction and manufacturing by 3x. We think that this is key to unlocking our ability to scale and our customers' ability to scale with us. We need to be laser focused on reducing that time from when the mega pack leaves the factory to when it is operational on the grid. And it's not just about uh, centralized storage, it's also about distributed storage, the future uh, roadmap of, of uh, well, at least here at Tesla. Um, and, and maybe some of you know about this sort of retail plan we have here in, in Texas, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about how that all fits together. So Tesla Electric really unlocks the va full value of distributed energy and storage products. So um, it enables our customers to become their own utility. The data on the page is from our South Australia uh, virtual power plant, um, another Tesla Electric uh, uh, setup that we have. Um, over, the, over 2022, it's 5,000 customers that we, we have the data for. You can get a sense for what's happening. So just if they were being provided default utility service and you looked at the cost of serving them that electricity, on average, $140 a month. If they all had solar and Powerwall, but the solar and Powerwall wasn't interacting with the grid, wasn't participating in the energy market, the cost of serving that customer would go from uh, would would have go from $140 a month to $70 a month. If you, if Tesla Electric is operating um, those assets in an intelligent way to benefit the grid, uh, Tesla Electric being basically a software that we developed out of AutoBidder for the purposes of, of of these distributed energy resources, we can actually pay the customers to bring their 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 energy services to the grid. That's what happened in Australia last year. And Australia is a little bit of a special case. They're, they represent the future, South Australia in particular. Solar and wind supplied 70% of South Australia's energy in 2022. That compares to 30% in Texas and 35% in California. But, it, but this, is a, this is an indication of where this is all headed, of both centralized and distributed um, storage resources uh, providing the, the, the key to unlocking fully renewable grids. And Tesla Electric is the retail plan that we're using to bring that to bear for our, our, our customers that have our products. Um, and you know, this is how we're rolling it out. Uh, first, as it exists, uh, it's available for, uh, in Texas for people who have power walls in their homes. But we need to extend beyond that. Over a billion people live in markets with competitive retail electricity. And there's over a two trillion in annual energy spend in these markets. This is a huge opportunity. And the, our intention is to bring this to you know, market by market in the same way that we've, we've approached Tesla Insurance, where we can bring value to our customers to reduce their total cost of ownership of our products. Wow, that'll be so cool. Actually, what we're going to do next, and this is pretty exciting here in Texas uh, by, by this summer, we're going to offer a, a retail electricity plan to people who have our cars where they can have unlimited overnight home charging for $30 a month. This is part of reducing the total cost of ownership of our vehicles. And the reason why we can do this is because Texas has a ton of wind. 
And in Texas, the wind blows at night. So actually serving these customers with electricity at night for their cars is the best thing to do for everyone. And so this is a way to incentivize people to charge at home at night directly from renewable power. It's part of the grand master plan we talked about at the beginning. Um, so we're, we're, we're very excited about this. Um, and we do see this similar to Tesla insurance, as I said, as further reducing the total cost of ownership of electric vehicles. So putting this all together, we're really at the beginning of this uh, massive ramp in energy storage deployment. And yeah. Yeah, reflecting back on the on the master plan, we talk about tens of terawatt hour needing tens of terawatt hours of stationary storage. So we have our sites set on annual production rates of one terawatt hour, which is 25x our capacity at Lathrop. Uh, in, the, in, in the near term, we see, we see really strong demand for the Megapack product, over 100 gigawatt hours per year uh, in 2023 and growing by over 100 gigawatt hours per year over the next few years. So the demand will, is there. Um, and naturally, as we continue to focus on cost and speed and value, the things that we've mentioned, it's clear we need to build more capacity and we need to ramp it quickly. So while the challenge is big, it's also a huge opportunity for Tesla. It's a huge opportunity for, for the Megapack business. Um, and I'm excited to see the impact that it's going to make on our grid transition. As am I. Yeah. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you all. Yes. All right. And uh, Laurie, Brandon, come on up. Hi, I'm Brandon with the legal team. Thank you. Not just for uh, coming, but being investors. Now, we have, we have an active and engaged board and management team. We've met with you, and today is the culmination of that. We've heard you, which is why we're excited to share this investor day with you. Now, you will hear more from our board at the appropriate time, but for now, I'm excited to introduce Lori Shelby, who's going to discuss sustainability and our employees. Lori? Thank you, Brandon. Hi everyone, my name is Laurie Shelby and I lead the environmental health, safety, security and sustainability team. I've been with Tesla for five and a half years. So I'm going to talk about Tesla's impact. And of course, that starts with our awesome team members. So you've heard a lot today about our amazing products, our process, our software. You've seen lots of numbers and lots of graphs. You've also heard a common theme, and that common theme is that Tesla's team is what drives our success and makes a difference. Whether you're in our factories, in our sales service and delivery centers, our warehouses, or in the field, you can see and you can feel the collaboration that's happening, and you also can see the pride that everyone has in working for Tesla. So before I go on, I want to give a big shout out and a thank you for our Tesla team globally. So let's. That was great. That was great. Thank you. So we are creating a lot of meaningful work through our jobs. We're a huge employer and we're growing every day. We're at 129K. And more than half of our team works in vehicle manufacturing. And almost 60% of our team is based in the US. People want to join our mission. 
and we need to grow and we need to hire the best people. Engineers want to work for Tesla. Look at number one and number two, SpaceX and Tesla. In 2021, we got three million applicants. Three million, that's incredible. And our culture, our culture at Tesla is anyone at any time can raise an idea or make an improvement suggestion across safety, people, cost, production, quality. Because we have a very simple process called take charge. And take charge is really employee engagement. And as take charges go up, as you can see in this graph, injuries go down. And you know why? People who do the work, the people who do the work know how to improve the work. Sustainability, sustainability is everything. It's our mission. You've heard about it all day, part of our master plan. But at Tesla, we don't just tick boxes to meet a requirement. We really focus on the impact that our products and our software will deliver. In 2021, our customers avoided 8.4 million metric tons of greenhouse gas. That's equivalent to taking 1.7 million ICE vehicles off the road for a full year. Yes, yes. We're also focusing on doing really good work and driving sustainability into our operations. We have year-over-year -year reduction in our water use, in our waste, and we're growing and building a renewable energy program within our operations, just like supercharging, as you heard. So it's not just about our products, it's the way we make our products, both phases. Tesla, our company, is solving both sides of the clean energy equation. We've got the clean generation, the clean storage. We also have zero emission transport. As this slide shows, from 2012 to 2021, our products generated more energy that was consumed by all Tesla vehicles and our factories. It's amazing. Yeah, I like the claps, yeah. I'll take, I'll take, all, I'll take claps. <laughs> so our vehicles use less emissions than gas-powered vehicles. Even in the worst case scenario, 100% coal grid, the Model 3 has less emissions than the average ICE car. And we're only gonna get better. You heard about that today. Every product we make is more efficient. Every factory we build is more sustainable. So it's only gonna get better and better. So as we build our zero emission future, we've been talking with our stakeholders, with our shareholders, about how do we improve our reporting framework. And we are aligning with the TCDF, so TCFD. <laughs> so we're aligning with the TCFD, which I know many of you have been asking us about. I also want you to stay tuned because there's gonna be much more 
coming in our impact report. So thank you all. And up next is Zach Kirkhorn. Thank you, Laurie. All right, so this is our last section of our prepared remarks today. Um, we'll kind of take what we've discussed today and summarize it at the corporate level for our financials. Maybe before I jump into the details here, we've never done an investor day as a company. We've never brought our leadership team out and asked them to talk about the things that they're working on. So, you know, I feel very fortunate to be able to work alongside this group of people and support their teams. And I also just want to thank them, they're in a room in the back listening to this, for all of the work that they put into today and getting the company to where it is today. So thank you to the Tesla team. When we were preparing for today, folks were asking, well, Zach, what should we talk about? And really, the only guidance we gave folks is, well, talk about the things that you're working on and talk about it in the context of the master plan. And what did almost everybody talk about today in great detail? All of the work that they're doing to take cost out. Because in this industry, in this business, you survive or you die based upon the ability to manage your costs. And so I'd like to talk about cost as well. If we look at our longest running scale production product, this is the Model 3. We reached 5,000 cars per week, which was our design capacity in mid-2018. Uh, and since then, we've taken 30% of cost out of this product. And there's two points I want to make about this. The first is that cost reduction, as you have heard throughout the course of the day, is deeply ingrained in our culture. And I think one of the most important reasons why we are here today as a company. The second point that I want to make is that when we're working on cost reduction, it's easy just to take cost out and make our products worse. But we have to take cost out and improve our products at the same time. This is the hard thing to do, but it's the necessary thing to do to continue to move forward. And if you look at a version of a Model 3 that we've built today, and you compare it back to a Model 3 that we built in 2018, there's a long list of improvements that we put into the car while also taking cost out of the product. Cost reduction doesn't just come from one place. There's no silver bullet here. And we've pushed the boundaries on volume with the Model 3 program, increasing volume 3x over this period of time. We've improved productivity. So in our Fremont factory, we are twice as productive now as we were in mid-2018. We've made a lot of progress on overhead efficiencies and product improvements, as we've discussed, and a long list of other things, including localization, our factory in Shanghai. And as we ramp up volume and as we find efficiencies, we work with our suppliers to do the same. And that leads to material cost reductions that improve the affordability of our products. And as we look forward to our next-gen vehicle, our target is to reduce 50% of cost. And we've talked about that a bit earlier today. From going from the, the Model S and X platform to the 3 and Y platform, we took out 50% of cost. So the task here is to do it again. And this is very important because as we improve affordability, the number of customers who have access to our products dramatically increases. And as we link this back to our master plan, it enables an exponential growth in our volume with linear reductions in the cost of our products. 
The second point I'll make here is that, and again, cost reductions don't come from any single one place. And so you can see the buckets here on the vehicle side, battery and powertrain, manufacturing cost reductions and others. These buckets are relatively equal in size. And so in order to take 50% of cost out of the product, we have to go through everything. But more importantly than just the cost of the car up front, when we're transitioning to a sustainable economy, particularly with vehicle ownership, it's really important to think about the lifetime cost of, a, of the products. And uh, this chart here is showing what the total cost of ownership per mile is over the course of five years. And we have to think about financing costs, insurance costs, the cost of power. Drew talked a little bit about that with the plants that we're doing in Texas, wear and tear and maintenance on the cars, et cetera. And we're already at a place today in the US where a base model three on a cost per mile basis is less than a Toyota Corolla, which is the highest selling car in the world. And as we move towards our next gen platform, we will continue to reduce this. And as we work on robo-taxi variants of this platform, this cost will come down even further. And so this is a product that, has, that we expect to have substantially lower cost per mile than the highest volume products in the world. The next thing on cost reduction I want to talk about is operating expenses. We spend a lot of time on our earnings calls talking about gross margins and product cost. We don't spend a lot of time talking about OPEX, but I think this is one of the really important parts of our story. So since 2018, we've reduced our non-GAAP OPEX 60% as a per percent of revenue and 75% on a per-delivered car basis. Uh, this is quite staggering, and I want to go into the details about how we've done this. The first component of OPEX, which is R&D, the, the single most important thing here is that we constrain the number of programs that we work on, so minimizing the number of programs that we're running in parallel, and the key here is to maximize the revenue and cash generated from every program that we work on, and also maximize the technology sharing between the programs. So we talked a little bit about how power electronics in our energy business is shared with power electronics in our vehicle business. If we look at the SG&A side of this, um, I think the story here is pretty dramatic. So we're showing here a comparison of SG&A per car delivered compared to the traditional auto industry, which is both an OEM and the dealership network. And our estimates are that we're 60 to 70 percent lower on a per car basis. And if you turn this into dollars, this is many thousands of dollars per car. This is part of the reason why on the last earnings call, I made the comment that we think about operating margin more so than gross margin as a company, because the, uh, the integration that we have here on the SG&A side, particularly with vertical integration into our dealership network, this provides efficiencies that um, give us a competitive advantage from a cost structure standpoint relative to other companies. The other thing that I'll note here is that this wasn't always the case. And it wasn't that long ago where these bars would be inverted. And if we go back a little bit in time, and we talk about when we launched Model 3 in the Fremont factory, we went from 2,000 cars per week, which was SNX, adding 5,000 a week to that for Model 3 got us to 7,000 cars a week. You've heard some folks here today talk about production hell. What I don't think we've ever talked about as a company is back office operations hell, which also happened at the same time. And 7,000 cars a week, 350,000 cars a year, we want to go to 20 million cars a year, and we're struggling at 7,000. 
and we're saying to ourselves, we have to completely rethink the way that we're managing our back office operations if we have any hope of efficiently scaling this company. And so this began a process that we're still continuing to work on today, but it's something that we refer to as the Tesla operating system. So in the same way that we're vertically integrated into the software that manages our cars, we've also vertically integrated into the software that runs our company. And all of our major uh, departments in the company are using, or not all of them yet, but almost all of them are using our in-house software. Most recently, we uh, removed third-party recruiting software, and we're now running our own recruiting software as a company. And this matters a lot because rather than having a complex web of third-party systems that are generic solution that take a lot of effort to customize for our particular needs, we've been able to put in place with an in-house applications engineering team dedicated lightweight software that does only what we needed to do and nothing more. And that team works very closely with process improvement teams that sit within the business who are looking through all of the processes that we're managing as a company and following the exact same process that Tom mentioned in the manufacturing space to look at our processes, delete process steps that we don't need, simplify process steps that are existing, and automate what's remaining. And the results of this have been quite staggering, to be frank. I think it's exceeded our expectations as well. Uh, on the left side of this chart are some examples of the efficiency improvements that we've seen within our SGNA areas as a result of this strategy. The North American sales team is four times more efficient now than they were in 2018. Uh, order operations team, financial services, I mean, these levels of improvement are large, and I don't, there's not enough pixels on the slide here to list out everything, so it's just a couple of examples. And then in the same way that when we look to take cost out of our products, we want to feature up the product or improve the product while taking cost out, the same has been true with the use of Tesla operating system and that integration with our process improvement teams within the company. And so we've in increased performance and added capabilities while also dramatically reducing cost on a per car basis. There's a list of self-service functionality that we've put in place, which customers like. It also simplifies our operations behind the scenes. We've used the Tesla operating system to expand into our captive insurance space, which we are fully vertically integrated into. We run our own in-house software. We have our own agents, our own claims software, and, own, and, and claims folks who run our insurance business. This is also very important because as a technology company, data is very important. And uh, we use these systems and the access to the data in those systems to pull out extremely granular and targeted reporting that enables us to see every aspect of our business in real time so we can make adjustments to our operations as needed. And there are sometimes examples where we say, man, I wish we were tracking this piece of data. Well, you know, it's a team's meeting away from the applications engineering team to make a request, and then we can start tracking that data and make those changes. And so the feedback loop associated with process improvement inside the company is, is pretty astounding. The last thing I'll just mention here, which is something I'm personally quite proud of, we've made a lot of progress in our closed processes within the finance team, getting our 10Q and 10K filed. It's amongst the fastest of the 20 largest market cap companies, so great work to the finance team here. So all of this work on cost reduction is extremely important because we have a lot of money to spend ahead of us to achieve our goals uh, within the master plan. So we've mentioned over the course of the day today, 20 million annual vehicle production as our target, one terawatt hour of annual 
energy storage production, and then expanding cell production, service, and charging in line with the growth of those other businesses. And so we've estimated what we think the total cost to get there will be, and there's certainly error bars around these numbers as, uh, as we continue to progress and innovate, but of this, we've spent about $28 billion of that so far in the history of the company. And maybe this total investment looks large. I actually think it's quite small relative to our ambitions. And if you look at our 2022 operating cash flows and you, you just say, well, let's assume some modest growth to that, maybe not all that much, uh, if you're being conservative, but the ability to pay for this level of investment uh, from the forecast that we have is, is very achievable for us. I'm often asked about capital allocation. I think our strategy here is very straightforward. I touched upon it a little bit in our last slide, but just to be explicit about it, uh, obviously the priority here is to ensure that we're using capital to run the day-to-day -day operations of the business. This is a working capital intensive business, and this has to be managed very carefully. And so, you know, over the course of a quarter, there can be multi-billion dollar swings in our cash balance up and down, just depending upon the timing of when we build and deliver cars. So we obviously have to have money set aside for that. Uh, downside protection is another really important area where we have money set aside for that. Uh, and over the last couple of years throughout the pandemic, I think this just highlights why being ready for downside protection is important. Uh, preserving daily operations is the engine that then generates cash that allows us to reinvest into the growth of the business. And I'm very proud that over the last couple of years, despite the ups and downs in the macro environment and interruptions to supply chains, we have never once pulled back on our investments and in growth. So that remains a huge priority for us. We do then, after investing in growth, we look at opportunistic ways to spend our cash. These are more financially oriented, where if a return exceeds a hurdle, then we can place cash in that. This is part of our story of cost reduction in the Fremont factory. Um, and then on the excess side, you know, this is where you know, the board meets on a regular basis and they're thinking about what our cash flow projections are looking forward and whether it makes sense to do buybacks or dividends. So to wrap up the finance portion of the presentation today, a uh, couple of key messages I just want to leave you all with here is that we use innovation at an intense level to drive costs down and improve the efficiency of the business. And the reason this is so important is it allows us to improve product affordability. And this is particularly the case when we move to our next generation platform. Improving affordability allows us to comfortably make investments that grow volume, that volume generates cash that then allows us to make more investments, and as we integrate that going forward, you know, it's our belief as a leadership team here at Tesla that we're going to achieve unprecedented scale in the manufacturing space. And this is what's ultimately required to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. So with that, this completes the prepared portion of today. We're going to take a short break and then we'll resume with a live Q&A. Thank you all very much. So 20 million <coughs> would replace either all of North America or all of EU's capacity for 2022. We're looking at right. 
2022.8 for North America or 23.5 for EU. Um, Eastern Europe is seven and Middle East is 4.4, but Asia Pac is 77 million. <laughs> Incredible like numbers. <laughs> Incredible numbers. Um, and, you know, quite overwhelming. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of detail uh, in this presentation. Um, maybe maybe too much. Uh, yeah, we're we're pushing. On I, three I was thinking like ninety minutes. <laughs> yeah, we're pushing on three hours now. Uh, four. This is. Uh, well, we started oh, for the four, show. Yeah, four thirty. Yeah, right? early. Yeah, yeah. So, um, this is just a lot. Uh, it is. I I and. We haven't heard anything about new factories, right? Haven't heard anything about no. anything. Just that they would uh, need them. <laughs> right. All they're saying is they need them. They're not even saying how many they need at this point. Although right. we've heard that number before. But uh, I'm curious if once uh, the 4680s at Giga Nevada ramp up, if they'll redo the 2170 line, because that's enough for four more of those, those modules that they're pointing out there. That's yeah. a lot of batteries. Well, that's the thing with the with the uh, movement of getting better over time and redesigning as you're getting better, so that the next yeah. iteration is even better. Is eventually you do have to go back to those original systems and rework them so that they can yeah. be as efficient as your second and third and fourth generation uh, systems as well. So, it's like we saw with the vehicles themselves, the Model X and X Plaid are basically improvements that they got from Model Y. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's quite a change uh, that you're going yeah. to have to manage as time goes along, because it seems that every time they build a new factory or a new system, they're increasing its ability based on their history or their their experience from the past. And uh, yeah. I'm hoping that they're you know they they go back and they make changes to the other system without, of course, uh, disrupting production. Which is what right, they, that part. <laughs> what they don't want to do. So yeah, but what they could do for 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 that on 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 Giga Nevada is as they you know Berlin just started making batteries. Um, Austin is is ramping up, and once they get Giga Nevada doing forty six eighties, maybe one of them will make enough production that they can knock out the twenty one seventies and replace them with either new tech twenty one seventies or. Just, just be done with 2170s and go to 4680s and 18650s and just call it a day. Yeah, well, maybe it's maybe it's a, a question of um, being able to switch, like with Project Highland coming up. Maybe that, yeah. you know, that that's something that you can employ, and that pushes the batteries, that pushes the 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 uh, structured pack, all these things to the forefront, and reworks the Model Three to accept these things. Uh, yeah. And then get the efficiencies uh, of those uh, changes all at the same time. Yeah, uh, uh, it looks like they're going to do some home home HVAC and an office HVAC. That, that's sharp, but no word on that. And uh, and then we're looking at the forty eight volts on the on the uh, low voltage side of the Cybertruck, which is already going to be a thousand volt architecture. They told us on on the semi delivery day that's a thousand volt architecture, and they would share it with with the Cybertruck. Yeah. That was pretty. I mean, we knew it was coming, but but to, to see them say, "All right, we finally decided we're going to do it," and, and and Elon had said, "You know, it doesn't make sense to do it on the existing cars as they are as a drop-in, but for a clean slate, you, you reduce your your amount of copper and wiring needed because you go for thinner because you're working at higher voltages." And, 
yeah that reduces your cost right there cheaper electronic fuses and yes. uh all, all costs drop uh when it comes to that so again that's the innovation here right that's uh tesla yeah. looking at what what it's costing them to operate uh what it's costing them to repair and they're yeah. making changes based on that uh, similar to the slide about the uh about the 12 volt battery right switching right. to a lithium ion battery uh reduces your four-year replacement to basically lifetime, <laughs> lifetime. um so and they went from 12 to 16 volt yeah so that's that's something that uh will be interesting to see if if they even look at the legacy cars uh will they be offering at tesla shops the ability to install say a lithium battery in a 2018 model 3 uh that didn't have the option of of uh, getting a lithium in the first place because uh, hopefully those those retro kits are available uh right. to allow uh car owners that will keep their car for 10 years uh to be able to uh, just buy one more battery and that'll be it right because these cars are gonna have an incredible lifespan it would make sense to keep them on the road for the mission of reduction in in harm to the planet if you have to throw them away just because they have new tech that's not the mission exactly <laughs> ultimately exactly. it's like like you're saying one thing and doing another yeah and I liked that they were that not only are they focusing on these these cost reductions, but but uh, they're working on the efficiency production improvements, but but all without redu reducing the customer enjoyment uh, of the product. Now, uh, the rest of it is a growing pain on the customer, just like that we saw when they went from S and X to to the first threes, the the servers with. <laughs> but they they've been working on it. It's been getting better, yeah. and uh, they're trying to keep up with the amount of volume increases they're doing. And, I like what I'm seeing as far as their efforts. Uh, they make misses, but but they, they they try to not make those same misses again on the next time around. Yeah, yeah. Well, Casey, I think we're going to end the broadcast. Um, okay. I think it's. I think we're at our max. Um, I'd like to thank <laughs> everyone that stuck with us. Uh, certainly, you can tune into the uh, Tesla Live account if you want to watch the uh, five minute. Uh, I'm sorry, the Q and A that's going to happen afterwards. I'm just scared that can, the Q&A may last an hour. <laughs> right? I, can, I, I can leave the Q&A on screen and take us off the screen. And then uh, and then when it finishes, I can cut the podcast. Um, so with the podcast, it's going to be too long for the quality that I, I usually upload. Do we want to do parts one, two, and three, or however many? Or do we want to just reduce the audio quality until it fits? Uh, let's, let's reduce the audio quality until it fits. OK. All right. So, uh, for everybody else uh, in the in the audience, do you have anything you want to say with us before we uh, just make this thing full screen on you? Actually, it, I I think I'd like to end the stream completely. They okay, can, that's fine. They can connect, they can tune in on the other uh, one. With, All right. So right. Let me put a link to it in the chat so they can see it on their own, and then uh, and then that means I don't have to uh, babysit it. That's right. <laughs> So uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us uh, this afternoon. Uh, we appreciate that. If you haven't given us a thumbs up already, please do. Uh, we would really appreciate that. And uh, we thank you for your time. And we'll get together next week. And we'll find out what's going on in the Tesla life. See you later. And I'll catch you guys on Sundays. Those of you who want to come to my show. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Good night, everyone. <laughs>